Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Making History Dope Again. Um, we have the trio back together. Ethan is freshly released from quarantine. I'm back. He is back. Uh, I wish I could say by popular demand. Um, just kidding. We're very glad to have him back. <laughs> but anyways, we are doing a part uh, two uh, of our uh of our American Revolution series. Uh, if you have not yet heard part one, I would encourage you to go back and listen. Uh, that one looked at the experience and legacy of loyalism during the American Revolution. This part two that we are very excited about concerns black Americans, both loyalist and patriot, and really seeks to see um, how did their loyalties impact what happened to them. Well, hey guys what's up hola now ethan uh why are you here um uh back by popular demand that's what you said oh already uh, right did I? okay oh yeah. not by popular demand yeah i right. wanted you guys to know that i'm not dead right it's yes. very important i'm here I, I i was uh we got a couple people who were like is, is ethan okay is he is, <laughs> like, you guys kept talking about me in the past tense yeah, sure. And then you would jump in, Jonathan. You'd be like, I had to remind that yeah. <laughs> you were still with us. Uh, I think the the torch for um, references and puns has officially been tapped, uh, passed to Jonathan. Oh, well, thank you. I think uh, you came with the, the dad I'm a very punny guy. You are. It was, it was smooth, man. Yeah, it was yeah, smooth. I try. Yeah. I might work a little extra hard to work something. Today. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> Take that title back. <laughs> now, Ethan, how was how was your uh, your quarantine, man? Well, we should clarify first of all. You didn't have the COVID. You didn't have yeah, the Rona. No, so I I, I don't want to get into too much of the particulars, but it was a precautionary quarantine. Um, I'm fine. My family's fine, um, and so. You know, I just didn't quite have enough of working from home since March. Just wanted a little bit more. You wanted some more, right? <laughs> yeah. Summer ended too soon, huh? Uh, and found found out that um, fast food delivery is ridiculously expensive. <laughs> so. Yeah, because they would. Are you talking about using like a Grubhub or something? Yeah, so I don't want to uh, name. Like I just not did. that we would. Get <laughs> <laughs> but. A delivery service is like $15 or $10 off your order $15 or more. It's like, boom, I'm getting Taco Bell. Said Taco Bell that I had today. Yes. Yeah, delivery okay. cost alone was like $10. Wow. So much for not saying the name. Well, that's not the delivery service. Oh, okay. Yeah. It was yeah. that much? $10. Yeah. Really? Like after tip. Did it come with like an extra burrito? or? No, that's just the service charges. Really? From that delivery service and the tip for the driver. I feel like I've had like, like more expensive food for cheaper than that. That's a lot of ten dollars is a lot of money. I I got God yeah. to me at least. I, mean, I really wanted Taco Bell. Yeah, badly. You were eating it today. You were, we were we were in your room and you were heating up your lunch and you had your. How many times do we have to say Taco Bell before we get <laughs> four like, day? Uh, yeah, how many is I, I don't know what the the <laughs> equilibrium. I think is there's there. there's one more. You can say it one more. Time. Yeah, one more time, and then they, then they come after you. Yeah. Yeah. To clarify for our soon-to-be Taco Bell sponsors, Ethan, uh, was the Taco Bell good? <laughs> oh, it's great. Two thumbs up. Two thumbs. When you uh, when Way you up. slapped it on your plate, it had a very uh, satisfying thud. I would um, say you can't Taco Bell, but I don't think that's the slogan anymore. No. Uh, what you guys remember the, the Taco Bell Chihuahua? Yeah. I had a little stuffed 
don't know why we have had a little stuffed version of him. We squeeze him. He said it in the voice that I'm really? not going to try to. Wonder if those things are worth any money. Did you guys growing up always get like the Happy Meal toys? Like me and my older sister, we collected them. And I remember like by the time we were in like middle school where we moved houses, we just had a whole thing of them. And I have no idea where they're at now. But I'm sure they're the only ones that are worth money now are Beanie Babies. Really? I think that that was. There's got to be a market. So there have been a lot of. Taco Bell slogans. Now, so the current one is live, no, live, Moss. Live, Moss. live, Moss. But let me ask you, what is? <laughs> so they started in 1969. Really? What was their first slogan? <laughs> I don't want to. In this, in this game, we're going to call it a slogan roulette. <laughs> no. Um... Can you be canceled by this podcast? <laughs> yes. Um. Wow. Can I? Can I take a step back? Towards sure. that last podcast. Sure. You, yeah. guys, you guys killed it. That last podcast was amazing. Um, I really wish I could have been here for it. But you guys inspired me in my own free time. I dusted off a few old books that I haven't read from when I took the class. And I was going, I was. I didn't reread the whole books, mm-hmm. but some Bernard Balin and some Gordon S. Wood, some, you know, the yeah. American Revolutionary uh, historians. And you guys had me indexing learning more about loyalists that mm-hmm. I don't remember even learning. It was awesome. Like I felt like it was really cool. Like, Hey, I get to just learn without, <laughs> without being told to. <laughs> yeah. for class. Well, Cause you're, you're done with your yeah. master's. Yeah. Now. Congratulations. Nice. So now watching yeah. uh, NBA basketball and then reading history books during commercial breaks. What well, else do you want? Sounds like a dream. Sounds like a great one. Yeah. So do we want to hear the slogans or no? What do we think? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> okay. Yes. What's the over? Okay. Okay. So this is in the context of this is what Taco Bell did. This is not what we're suggesting their names become. Um, okay, so Taco Bell, 1969 to 1978. Their slogan was, and I quote, for, you know, for my own safety, uh, run for the border. Whoa. Whoa. Wow. Uh, for nine years. Yeah. Yeah. And from 78 to 86, the fresh food place which fresh food place that sounds like subway it sounds like whole foods yeah, yeah. like definitely don't think a taco bell when i hear that no also it's not it's not fresh, fresh it's not fresh it's not fresh how fresh maybe is... they went through like a salad phase went through like a they were like we're gonna have okay yeah i don't know yeah that doesn't make sense right yeah. no no uh <laughs> from 84 to 86 which tells me somebody got fired um it was yes. hello taco bell <laughs> classic yeah. Just, what else do you need, right? I mean, it it plays on the bell. I was thinking, like, where does the name come from? Like, what's the significance of the bell? Oh, it's Hello Taco Bell. It doesn't really flow that well. No. No. But, like, in terms of the name, like, Taco Bell, Bell, like, what's the bell? What's the significance of it? Yeah. That's what I think of. You you mean, like, when a door opens and it rings? That's, like, that's the bell? Like, the bell. The name in Taco Bell. What does the bell stand for? (laughs) I don't know if I understand what it stands for. That's what I'm saying. I don't know, I don't know either. Yeah. Okay. Uh, from 86 to 93, it was the cure for the common meal. These are just terrible guys. These are awful. Yeah. Yeah. I'm learning a lot about um, why Taco Bell is the way it is. From, they had two from 93 to 2001. Uh, first was the one you said. You'll get our Taco Bell. Right. Which is, I'd heard that one. And then their secondary one was. It's so stupid. <laughs> it was. Want some? <laughs> <laughs> 
remember that. <laughs> what was the year for that? that was a, 93. So as long as it was like, you know, uh, run for the border, they were just bought some. Like, some. <laughs> dude, they need new like marketing executives. This is rough, dude. I think we could do the job. And then um, the one that I remember, uh, yeah, 01 to 12 was Think Outside the Bun. Okay, think yeah. outside the box. Which makes sense in tacos, that, yeah. right? That's and then clever. and then Live Moss, which I think is Moss. Uh, or I guess it was Wake Up. No, Live Moss. Yeah, Live Moss sense. So dude. This sounds like another podcast, like just Taco Bell. History yeah. of Taco History Bell. History of Taco Bell. Yes. But want some is the best one. <laughs> what what else would three white young guys talk about except the history of Taco Bell? It's like the ghost. Yeah. yeah, it's perfect. I would argue there's nothing more white. Than three guys <laughs> talking about Taco Bell. Like, <laughs> Do you guys also drive Subarus or? Uh... Yeah, yeah. Listen to NPR. <laughs> yeah. Um, Do you Do you know what I want some of? I want some history. Some history, yeah. Uh, so. Yeah. It's not not we can do talk about. I can do better. Way no next. I don't know. So, <laughs> so, so uh, <laughs> I can't even talk. So, Jonathan, uh, I know you've been working hard on this on this project for your class. Um. And this was originally going to be part of your of our grad school class project. And then you found so much stuff that you told your professor, I'm just going to write the full length paper. And you actually exceeded the page length of the paper by like 10 pages. Yeah, it's a short flex, right? So I originally thought, you know, 10 pages, I can say everything I need to say. But very quickly found out that there is so much more. And there might have been a few rabbit holes I, I went down, but. Yeah, it's like 20, almost 25 pages worth of worth of stuff for you guys today. I'm going to try to condense it as much as I can, but still get the message across. I'm excited, dude. Yeah. This is, um, you know, last, last episode, we talked a lot about, you know, how much white loyalists were, were marginalized. But, like, you think about an even more marginalized group, I mean, the African-Americans at the time, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and so I'm really excited um, to see this because, like, if we don't know about white loyalists, um, I would assume we probably know very little about black loyalists and, and black patriots for that matter. Yeah, so I know, like, for my experience going into this, the only thing I really knew about African Americans during the American Revolution was, like, that footnote that many of them joined for freedom. And that was it. That's it. So yeah. um, I was really excited in this class uh, to not only learn about loyalists, um, and patriots, but to really focus in on the black loyalists and patriots and see what happened after they joined the war. Was there any payoff to uh, their sacrifices? So uh, what we're going to focus on today, um, I'm calling this parallel paths, African-American loyal loyalties and experiences during the American Revolution. Um, and my thesis that I came up with was uh, the following. Regardless of their loyalties, the experiences of black patriots and loyalists during the American Revolution and the years immediate following were parallel as many were re-enslaved and those who gained their freedom continue to experience society's racism and prejudice. Oof. So yeah, so there's there's a lot to uh, so you're, to you're, unpack there. You're kind of saying like it, their path almost didn't matter. Yeah, I mean, from my research, it, it really kind of turns out that way. There, there's a few minor gains that should be applauded and should be recognized. But when you look at the larger picture, really, it didn't matter which side they joined. Okay. Wow. Now, I'm sure you'll get into this later, but 
for African Americans at the time was the choice to join the Patriots or joins the Loyalist cause. Was it strategic in terms of what's going to help me the most? Absolutely. They, okay. Um, and I'll get into this, but I'll go ahead and I'll say this now. Um, one of the leading historians on uh, African American history is a man named Benjamin Quarles. And a quote that I found of his, uh, he basically said, the major loyalty of African Americans was not to a place or a people, but to the principle of liberty. And thus they were likely to join the side that provided the best offer. Mm. So for them, it was, it was all about liberty. It was all about freedom. So uh, they weren't 100% in love with King George. They weren't 100% in love with George Washington. It was who can help me now in my situation. Okay. It makes sense. I mean, um, especially if you have, at least on paper, an opportunity to improve your situation, which as a, as a black person in America at this time is not great. Yeah, no, right. very, very few opportunities. So, um, so that's what we're looking at today. Um, I'll give you a little bit of the reasoning why um, I wanted to look at this topic. Like I mentioned, uh, I was just super curious with loyalists in general, like we talked about last episode, such a marginalized group from American history, a group that we really like ignore and really erase. Um, and if that's the case, like you said, for white loyalists, how is that for the black loyalists? Yeah. Um, also, like we talked about last last podcast, current events. I mean, right in the middle of this class, you had the Black Lives Matter movement mm -hmm. uh, with the death of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery. So that just kind of reinforced to me that, hey, this is definitely a, a topic worth looking at. And then uh, also just being a teacher in an urban school district, I have lots of students that don't look like me. Uh, and when we study history, unfortunately, they don't have a lot of people that look like them in our history books. So I figured if I could at least dive deep into this topic, um, I could have some comparisons, um, some information that I can take back to the classroom yeah. uh, to share with them. So those awesome. are the reasons why. That's, that's, that's powerful, man. I mean, that is just, that's what, and it's, it seems like so much um, good history happens when contemporary times kind of motivates it. In this case, it's like Black Lives Matter. Um, I know in some of the stuff we had to read for, for our class this summer, um, there was a lot of like publications we read that were written right around the time of the, the bicentennial, like, like yeah. you know, 1976, somewhere in that late 70s era, you know, and a lot of that was like real like star spangled, like, you know, you know, kind of the classic like founding father myths of like, you know, <laughs> being, uh, you know, all on the same page and, you know, perfect men instead of, of course, the, the human men they were. And so I think this is great. And like you said, we we all teach in a, a, a school district where, you know, people don't all come from the best backgrounds, you know, and so often what we teach is it, it's white history. It's the study yeah. of old dead white men, you know. I will say one thing I just love about history is that it it really does change. It goes against the popular opinion that, you know, history is, is written in a stone. It's not. I mean, every every year historians are finding new perspectives, new information. And so um, I'm excited to share with you guys the new perspective that I found. All right, guys. So um, I think it's important that we start off by talking about slavery. Yeah. Um, so we know as, as history teachers that the Atlantic slave trade started 1400s, right? Sure. Um, 
and from there, slavery was a lot different from slavery in ancient history. Right. Um, I know I always tell my students that slavery is not new. Yeah. It's been around for as long as people have been around. Um, but the slavery that we know today is is vastly different. Yeah. Um, so around, you know, 15th, 16th century, slavery became uh, an institution that focused predominantly on on Africa. Right. Right. And so um, any guesses as to when the first slaves were brought to what became the United States? Hmm. 1619. 1619. Good job, Ethan. Now, Ethan had a class, <laughs> I think, exclusively on what was the, what was the class title? Was it? Um, American slavery, or was it? I want to say it was slavery in the Americas. Yeah. Was the title of the class? So I think one thing but, you uh, shared with me was the different types of slavery, which I never really thought of. Yeah. Well, and there's an excellent uh, project. Uh, I think for, I want to say it's New York Times, mm -hmm. 1619. Yeah, yeah, it's if you haven't checked out the 1619 um, project, check I, it out. Yeah, it's so good. I think you shared that with me, Jonathan. I think it was when we were on vacation together. Yeah, and I was, I was, it was just incredible. She won a. Was it a Pulitzer Prize? I want to say she won the Pulitzer. Hold on, let me look it up. Yeah, it's yeah. also it's also been in the news lately uh, with some politicians criticizing it. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Okay. I'm so, pulling it up here. 1619 Project. It's a podcast series, but it's becoming so much more. Yeah, so uh, for those of you who aren't aware of the 1619 Project, um, I'll kind of go a little Nicole bit into Hannah depth. Jones. Yeah, sorry. No, Pulitzer Prize for Commentary. Yeah, 2020. So um, 1619 is when the first African slaves were brought to what became the United States. Yep. Um, if you think about a decade before, Jamestown, yep. 1607, 1607, first permanent uh, British colony in America. Um, and the whole purpose of Jamestown, it was an economic colony, right? They were there right. looking for, I think, gold at first, found tobacco. The Virginia Company, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah found tobacco um, and then started exporting that back to the mother country, gained a lot of money. But the whole purpose of the Virginia company and then the Virginia colony was not for settlement. Yeah. And so uh, when it came time to cultivate that tobacco, they needed laborers. Yeah. And there weren't a lot of Europeans coming from uh, the British Isles. And so the British took advantage of the already established slave trade uh, that was happening uh, from Africa to the Spanish colonies. Yeah. And so in 1619, I believe British privateers hijacked a couple of uh, slave ships, kidnapped uh, African slaves, and then brought them to Virginia. And so that's the first reported instance of slavery. Um, now, a lot of historians say that that slavery in 1619 was similar to what we would consider indentured servitude, okay. uh, where it wasn't a life sentence. But we know that throughout like the next century, yeah. that that definitely changed. And uh, slavery became uh, basically a life sentence. Sure. Um, and it was predominantly people of African descent. Right. And it was hereditary, yeah, which yeah. was which was very different. Because um, I know I know at the time, so 1619, I know indentured servitude was still well used. Yeah, it was by, pretty common. But I think, if I remember correctly, Bacon's Rebellion, which is in, I think, the, the 1670s, I think um, so. yeah. is kind of when, when servitude is kind of pushed away a little bit. And it's kind of seen as well, if we, if instead for our workforce, we use people who, who, you know, look different than the people who are controlling them. Um, yeah. And then also, let's be honest, like, you know, um, European to European, that treatment versus European to African, you can get away with treating your African differently, unfortunately, right? Yeah. And then also just the simplicity of it's, it's a lot easier for 
white indentured servants to blend in yes. with free white colonists. So yes. that was another motivating yeah. factor, unfortunately, for uh, using Africans as slaves. So I think it's important to, to, to realize, okay, so we have African slavery going on. We have indentured servitude. For those of you who don't know what indentured servitude is, it was mainly an, uh, a way for uh, Europeans to basically indenture themselves. So they entered into a contract um, usually it was like seven years at most. Yeah. If you can afford to come to the Americas, yeah. it was a great way to come here. And then a lot work, of times, yeah. And then a lot of times after your indentured was up, like you were granted like land from your, mm-hmm. from your master, things like that. So, uh, it's, it's not very similar to the slavery that we're aware of. Um, but it is a condition where you weren't free. Yeah. Another group during this time period that is under the same condition are convicts. Uh, it's during this time that a lot of convicts are mm. transported from uh, Ireland in particular over to the New World um, where they're, they're not enslaved. And if their children happened to be there, their children weren't enslaved. Yeah. But that convict usually had, you know, basically like a prison sentence. Yeah. Mm. So those are the three main conditions of servitude that are existing during this time period. But that... Uh... Ireland, particularly, you mentioned, would mm-hmm. that coincide with like Cromwell? A little bit. Uh, you see a lot of you, you see a lot of Scots after uh, the Jacobite Rising. Yeah. Scots Irish, yeah. Right? They they all settle on kind of the frontier, yeah. Mm-hmm. Appalachian, yeah. yeah, yeah. So so we know that slavery is going on. Um, yeah. By 1775, it's estimated that 300,000 enslaved Africans had been brought to the uh, to North America. Wow. So we got wow. 300,000 enslaved Africans. And by the time of the revolution in 1775, the black population is 500,000. So about half a million people living in wow. um, the 13 colonies. Now, is there a breakdown between, um, are those, um, and I don't even know what, the terminology for the times even african-american so enslaved yeah. africans you know i think there's a kind of yeah it's uh, important um the term i remember learning was saltwater slaves i've never heard that before meaning those are the enslaved africans who are um the first generation off the boat like kind of first generation yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. versus no, it's, of, it's very different because they're not willingly yeah that's not, right? that's not a good yeah. analogy yeah. for that but you know what i mean yeah so and i know mostly in like the southern Colonies Mostly or? in the southern, it's, it is important to know that slavery was legal in all thirteen colonies, and it was present in all thirteen colonies, um, but it definitely was predominantly in the south because of the agriculture at the right. time. Um, right. But Ethan, you bring up a good point. Something that I even struggled with in my paper is the terminology. So uh, I, I re- when I refer to Africans, I'm talking about the the people who were kidnapped from Africa okay. and brought over. Um, if I'm referring to African Americans, I'm talking about uh, people born in the United States uh, that have African heritage. Um, but a lot of times I think I'm mainly just going to refer to them as black patriots and black loyalists yeah. um, because I know a lot of people in uh, the black community prefer the term black over African-American. So yeah. I'm going to try uh-huh. to stick with those terms um, the best that I can. That's a lot to, to keep straight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it, it was confusing, even uh, researching. There's just so much going on. Sure. It's important to process. Though. Absolutely. Now, early at this point, right? So we're in the, we're in the the mid 1600s, 
right? Um, do you see a lot of families at this point being brought over as mostly men? No, um, it's so establishing a family unit was very difficult uh, for the enslaved Africans in the first couple of generations. So you're really seeing solo travelers, you're seeing solo men, women, children, obviously young men probably were the most common for labor uh, purposes. But eventually you are going to see uh, more young women for the unfortunate purpose of, of breeding. Um, so yeah, definitely younger men and women are the main are the main people being brought over. Interesting. Okay. Um, so <clears throat> we talked a little bit about the slave trade. I don't want to go too far in depth with that. Um, but I do kind of want to go into the principles of the American Revolution. And so <clears throat> we know that after the French and Indian War, otherwise known as the Seven Years War, um, like we talked about last podcast, Parliament decided to tax the colonies directly for the first time um, yep. because one, they had a huge war debt. And then two, with the acquisition of Canada, they wanted to protect the land. And we know that the colonists didn't like that, right? They thought it was an infringement on their rights. And I think one important thing to, to notice is the language that the white colonists used. Um, they referred to these British taxation poli policies as enslavement. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's just important to be aware of that this idea of enslavement through taxation exists in the mind of white uh, patriots when black people are literally being enslaved. Right, right. And so they're, they're trying to, to, Britain's trying to enslave us with these taxes while yeah. they are enslaving Right. Yeah. And the reason I say that is imagine <laughs> wow. imagine if you are an enslaved person and yeah. you're hearing we're being enslaved. This is wrong. Liberty to us. Yeah. When you're literally enslaved and you're hearing people shout liberty, right. you're probably going to have some inclinations of, hey, I want liberty, too. Right. So that's a, right there in an acknowledgement that slavery is bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. They're, right. Because they, they use, they're using slavery as, as a negative uh, connotation yeah you, you know a lot of you people know. talk about well slavery was accepted in that time well from what you just described that's very much an, an admittance that white american colonists at the time recognized slavery was bad because right. it was a bad thing for britain to tax them yeah right. yeah they felt financially enslaved and if that was bad what do you think yeah. of physical enslavement yeah. actual so, enslavement would yeah. be yeah well and there's and what's crazy about that whole thing is like I, I know we reread in our in our in our class this summer. I mean, like like Benjamin Franklin wrote to members of Parliament and said, "If you guys had only asked us to raise taxes, we'd be happy to do so ourselves." But the fact that you want to tax us—that's that's an infringement on our rights, you know. Mm -hmm. And then to, to to say that's equivalent to to the people you're actually enslaved. And Benjamin Franklin is actually owning slaves at this time, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, wow. And, and that this is this would be this this is the foundation of America, right? This is the grounds of which our nation are started at, right? Uh, I know. Principles. Yeah. So here we have a, a group of people um, that are enslaved. Um, it's hereditary. It's a life sentence. And it's only to those of African descent. While their white uh, Americans around them are crying of being enslaved by taxes. And so this is starting to this ideology is going to start to spread through the masses, these ideas of liberty and enslavement. Um, I think it's important 
to note that during this time period, uh, Boston Massacre, right? Mm-hmm. 1771. Yep. Uh, even from the, the very beginning. So the Boston Massacre by most historians is considered like one of the founding pillars of the American sure. Revolution, right? Catalyst. Yeah. Uh, First propaganda too. Absolutely, right? right? Yeah. Paul Revere using this uh, base. It wasn't really even a massacre, right? Five, five people lost their lives, but they turned it into a propaganda right as, right. as a spill um i think it's important to note that one of the first people to lose their life in the cause of what will become the american revolution a man named crispus attucks who was a black man and so uh, right from the very get-go uh black men are involved in the cause yeah so um, i mentioned earlier that benjamin quarles the historian talked about how um African-American loyalties was not to a people or a place, but to whoever would offer the best chance at freedom. Right. And so the very first opportunity that um, black men get to obtain their freedom is at Lexington and Concord. Okay. So 1775, the American Revolution begins. You have an officer, John Pitcairn who is coming from Boston um, to what is Lexington and Concord, trying to seize ammunitions, right? He knows of plots by by Sons of Liberty, and so he leads the Redcoats to seize that. Um, Well, there's a man named Prince Estabrook, and Prince Estabrook uh, was enslaved, but he was serving in the Lexington militia. Uh, Now, I think it's interesting that most enslaved men were not allowed to uh train with the militia but they were allowed to participate in times of emergency and so this was definitely an emergency would he be considered a minuteman yeah he was and so uh, a slave minuteman but still had to be separately trained right yeah not allowed to train and so he's really seeing action with with no training yeah uh being thrown into it so at lexington he's actually wounded He's one of the first people to be wounded in the revolution. Wow. He lives. Thankfully, he lives. As an enslaved yeah. man. And he, yeah. he does receive his freedom. Uh, right. He is rewarded his freedom uh, for his service. And I believe at Lexington today, there's there's plaques commemorating him. That really? is awesome. Uh, it took a while. I've never uh, been. They finally got been that. before? Never no. been. Okay. Never been. I'd love uh, to. Be so, so that's Prince Estabrook, enslaved man, literally a Minuteman, very beginning of the revolution. Uh, another black man. Peter Salem. You guys heard of Peter Salem? He's a little bit more well-known. Um, he was at Concord, okay. but he was a free man. Um, and in fact, his owner had granted him his freedom right before so that he could fight. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and Salem's going to be famous because that Major John Pickhorn who led them, Salem's the one who shoots him at Bunker Hill. My goodness. So right off the bat, you've got uh, key contributions from what, what, what I would consider so? black patriots. Uh, Peter Salem. Okay. At Bunker Hill, you said. At no. Bunker Hill, yeah. No, that's, so. that's the classic, uh, you know, don't fire until you see the whites of their eyes. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's yeah. a famous painting, uh, that I think it's the death of uh, British Major John Pitcairn. And if you look at that painting, um, you'll see a black man, I believe, in the right corner. And I think that's supposed to be Peter Salem. So we have two black men, both with very different... Uh, experiences right one's enslaved yeah. one's freed but both are taking up arms to fight the british so 
after Lexington and Concord, news spreads, right? It's the shot heard around the world. Well, guess who hears about it? Men of color. And so there's this huge wave of uh, men of African descent going to fight for liberty in Massachusetts. So let me ask you guys this. I've never led an army, right? But if I'm in the middle of the war, what's the one thing you need? Weapons. Weapons, okay. What else do you need? Men. You need men, right? So you would expect that you would take anyone who's coming, right? Well, that wasn't the case. Uh, Literally the day after Lexington and Concord, the Massachusetts uh, Committee of Safety limited African-American participation to free men only. Now, is those are famous words in this 18th century, right? French Revolution, yeah. You think of that whole thing, uh, uh, Robespierre. Um, Now, their choice to exclude men of color from this, um, is that concerns that they want to be loyal? Is it ideas that they want to be good fighters? I think it's fear. I think it's fear of putting weapons in their hands. Okay. Um, Obviously, slavery existed in the North. Um, In the South, there was lots and lots of revolts. And so there was always fear of slave revolts. So the Massachusetts Committee of Slavery limited it to free men. So if you were an enslaved man, you weren't allowed. If you were a free man, they they allowed you to to participate. So at Bunker Hill, um, it's estimated that 103 men of color were there. Wow. Participating, including uh, Peter Salem, who killed... Uh, British Major John Pickhorn. Wow, man. So right off the bat, like I said, we've got major contributions. Um, Unfortunately, after Bunker Bunker Hill, George Washington assumes command of the Continental Congress, right? And you would assume, not Continental Congress, sorry, Continental Army. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of Continentals at this point. You would assume, (laughs) seeing the success, right? Uh, Lexington and Concord, it was a a success, right? It wasn't. It wasn't a victory, but yeah. it, it wasn't a defeat. And the same right. with Bunker Hill. So you would think that George Washington would see, okay, we're being successful. We've got contributions from, from black men. Let's right. keep it rolling. Instead, Washington and Congress, they really struggle with this idea of, do we include men of color? And uh, this was really confusing to research, guys, because it's going back and forth. Now Washington should... would say yes, yeah. then he would say no. Yeah, it was so confusing. He's changing his mind. Now, we should say, and we covered this last time, uh, and probably, Ethan, even in our, our first couple episodes with the whole uh, series on Washington himself, mm-hmm. they are fighting against the finest force in the world at the time. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and not only were the British regulars incredibly well-trained and equipped and had quite the legacy of success, they are coming off of beating, you know, number two in the world, which is France, Seven Years' War. And so for Washington to be able to be this wishy-washy when it comes to just bodies in general, right? Wanting to fight against the greatest army in the world, I think it really tells you the role that color played in that society. Yeah, I mean, one thing that uh, I want to touch on, remember Peter Salem? Yeah. Well... Um, it was documented by 14 officers, Massachusetts officers. They documented that Salem behaved like an experienced officer and an excellent soldier. Okay. So you've got these men that are showing merit, yeah. that are showing skills superior to 
you know, your average soldier. Yeah. But yet, Washington, like you said, Andrew, being super wishy-washy. So does that is that evidence, is that enough to really show how deeply embedded um, slavery was in American colonial society? And not just embedded, but how people really did understand that we can't afford to lose this because our whole society is built on it. Yeah. Is that what it is? Is it, you know? I would say yes. I mean, because the, the war is still fresh. I think Washington was afraid of alienating mm-hmm. other whites mm-hmm. um, who were slave owners. And so I think he he was being wishy-washy. He was, being, he was picking and choosing um, who his allies were. Well, and you got to think about the wealthiest families where you'd probably get support in the war. Mm-hmm. What were they known for? Right. Yeah. yeah. How did they make their money? Right. Plantations. Right. Yeah. In, in, using not employing, employing. Certainly not employing. Using yeah. the, yes. the slavery. I was googling. Um, I was googling uh, the list of of uh, slave rebellions, and yeah, just so you know, within within thirty years of of the period we're in now, I mean, there are major, major, major slave rebellions, and so I'm sure those were being used as justification for. We can't arm these these black people because what if what if they turn on us? They turn on us, yeah. right? Um, yeah, you, yeah. And all there's there's other evidence I'll talk about that yeah. that goes on that. So, yeah. um, 1775, you know, late summer, Washington's in command. Um, the Massachusetts Committee of Safety said free men only. Uh, Washington was like, that's okay, and then he changes his mind to say no, no black men at all. And then people like Peter Salem and Prince Estabrook uh, and, and Salem Poor, they start to say, hey, what about us? What about our sacrifices? And then so Washington's kind of like, okay, let me think about it. And so finally, uh, they just say, hey, no black men at all. So free, enslaved, yeah. experienced, yeah, so, so heroes. <laughs> yeah, the Continental Congress adopted an, an exclusion policy. For, for was African there justification men. given in what you saw? Nope. Uh, they just really, uh, they categorized them with boys and with elderly and people who were enabled. Wow. Um, so I, I think that's evidence of just prejudice. Well, and, and the fact that they prejudice. can dismiss it that easily, you know, I think is, is really, like you were saying, Ethan, is, yeah. is, quite, is really quite the testament to um, the status quo of the era in terms of, you know, yeah. racial prejudice. Right. So just a real quick thing. I realized that I, I misquoted when I was talking about the uh, 14 Massachusetts officers uh, commending the soldier. It was Salem poor, not Peter Salem. Oh, okay. But still yeah. another another um, black man yeah. who performed well above expectations yeah. at, uh, at Bunker Hill. So uh, I think it's important to know that in late 1775, so right around the time that Washington and Congress are debating what they're going to do uh, with black patriots. The British are also dealing with what to do with, uh, with black loyalists. Right. And so in the South, in Virginia in particular, they have a royal governor by the name of Lord Dunmore. Um, I believe his real name is John Murray. He's the Lord of Dunmore. And uh, in Virginia, there's a lot of tensions rising uh, there's fear of slave revolts. You obviously got the stuff happening in Boston and yep. Massachusetts. And uh, the fear of the slave revolts really causes uh, panic in yep. Virginia. 
And what Lord Dunmore does is he seizes the ammunition supplies. That seems like a good move, right? You, you don't want enslaved people sure. to get the ammunition. But the Southern American colonists view that as uh, a military tactic on the British. Like, hey, they're trying to take the gunpowder from us. And so we have a bunch of uh, planters start marching uh, to the capital. Yeah. And uh, basically, Dunmore threatens, hey, if you're going to come after me, I'm going to free your slaves. <laughs> and it worked for a little bit. It, it got things to calm it's down. War, it's like a wartime tactic. Yeah. Wow. And so uh, eventually, in November, November 7th, 1775, uh, the Patriots, the Southern Patriots, they weren't backing down. So Dunmore declared his, his famous proclamation uh, where he uh, emancipated and offered freedom to any servant or slave who was willing to uh, to join the British now, to take up arms. Within the scope of Virginia, right? Yeah. Because that's, that's where he's royal governor. Mm -hmm. What's crazy is when I was probably, would have been early middle school, uh, my family one summer went to like colonial Williamsburg mm -hmm. and did all like the, you know, kind of went through the whole, because it's, it's a whole town. Yeah. And there was like kind of a, you could actually go to like, you could, you know, protest outside the, the world governor's house. And I gotta be honest, guys, <laughs> they did not talk about the, the whole slave aspect uh. of that. They definitely just, you know, it was just kind of, you know, he's tyrant like the king. And yeah, and that's it. They wow. really left out the whole the so, reason why. Yeah. Right. So, okay. So if you are willing to take up arms against this, this, you know, Against against this your masters, your masters really. truly. Well, the whole time, the enslaved blacks are being kind of are the pawns. Absolutely, because you know, the initial thing you said is Dunmore seized the ammunition because he wanted to prevent the enslaved peoples from arming themselves. Yeah. And then the Southern Patriots right. misread that as he's trying to prevent. Them from getting weapons. Which is funny because they too were worried of the slave revolts. Right. But they uh, didn't want him to seize the ammunition. So it's really an alliance. Wow. And even alliance is a, is a strong word. It's an alliance of convenience. Yeah, it's right? definitely a military strategy. So, 100%. Yeah, it, it's, it's, there's not like Dunmore has this this come to Jesus moment. No, there, there's <laughs> no, no uh, sympathy. There's no right. compassion. It's a military strategy. So how right? often do enslaved Africans get put in the middle oh yeah <laughs> just I, like where it's like you know it's not even pick a side it's like what side is going to manipulate you the most yeah, yeah now, i know from and i'm sure you'll get into this i know from just my loyalist perspective last episode and i didn't actually left this out of my research mm -hmm. but there was like you know in areas that were strictly especially in the south where there was you know heavy use of of of, of slave plantations um the british were more than willing to support slavery in regions where it benefited them yeah. because again we want to keep these people on our side yeah absolutely and i, and I will get into that i'm sure you will yeah, yeah. okay um so i the importance i think with dunmore's proclamation is it really uh cements the idea that the british are the liberators of the uh black condition in america hmm. and so from that you're gonna have thousands of men women and children flee to Dunmore to seek that liberty, uh, including some of George Washington's own Mount Vernon 
servants. Wow. Uh, wow. And so uh, right away, Dunmore, he's looking at this as a military strategy. Of course. And he's willing to utilize these new allies. Okay. And so he formed what's called the Ethiopian Regiment. And it's an all-black regiment. Uh, and they're famous for displaying the words liberty to slaves on their uniforms. Wow. Now, why did you see why Ethiopian? Uh, honestly, I think it's just the ties to um, to Africa. Okay. Yeah. There was no specific reason. Like, they weren't from Ethiopia. Um, I think it really just goes, you know, you're of African descent. We're just going to call you the Ethiopian Regiment. Wow. Okay. I think Ethiopia, it comes from, uh, I think Aristotle talks about it. Oh, um, Ethiopian, that word, now it's spelled differently in, in the, the Greek alphabet, but it translates loosely to burnt face. Mm, I don't think that's any better. Wow. <laughs> that's definitely worse. Yeah. That's wow. definitely worse. And I didn't so, know that. Okay. And so I, I would imagine Ethiopian not as a destination, not as a, certainly not as a as a as a nation state, but just as you're black. Yeah. You know? It's just interesting <laughs> that in these different things where it may appear that enslaved Africans are having opportunities to gain freedom, it's still done in a way that's just very oppressive. There's an agenda behind it. Yeah. yeah. But I guess if it's you're... Like, it's like definitely, it's very clearly not for their good. Right. It's just coincidental. But I'm sure for some of these, for some of these enslaved people, I mean, what other opportunities do you really have? Right? Yeah, I mean, you... You could run away, uh, but obviously then you're at the mercy of slave catchers. Yeah. And by this time at the revolution, those family units that we had talked about, they really had started to solidify. So you do have more families. um, And so by running away, you really were risking the breaking up of your family. Yes. Um, Because if chances were, if you were caught, you're probably going to be resold. Right. And guess what? Your whole family is not going to go to the same place. Thank goodness. But I think... With that said, a lot of these enslaved men and women took the chance. And we see thousands, men, women, and children, flee to Dunmore. My goodness. Um, So the Ethiopian regiment, not successful. Um, They see one major battle, the Battle of Great Bridge, where they are defeated by the Southern uh, Patriots. And so right away, uh, Dunmore's military strategy of using um, black soldiers fizzles. Okay. And so from there, the the strategy shifts from military to labor. Instead of soldiers, we're going to use you as laborers. And so uh, men, women, and children uh, became those laborers. They um, they worked in camps, you know, doing laundry. Um, they provided food, doing basic things like that. They also built musket cartridges, okay. did things that were a little bit more intensive, like repairing roads, draining ditches, building fortifications. So labor. Yeah. yeah. Now also, there... uh, the sick and wounded, like nursing them, so they okay. were exposed to, to disease oh, yeah. as well. Mm. Smallpox Does... hit these camps really hard. Does the offer mm. still stand in terms of as long as you assist freedom? Yeah. So um, that's, and, that's still on the table? And the idea was freedom after the war. Um, mm. But even though... British camp, they 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 were treated a lot better than their enslavement back on the plantations. But the idea was, uh, in some cases, you know, you're not free till the war's over. Right. Uh, but that wasn't always the case. For some, it was you're free. Right. Uh, 
Um, so it really did vary from city to city, leader to leader. Right. Um, wow. But the promise was always, come to us and you'll be free. Wow. Yeah. Now, this is going to, whether it is this uh, military regiment, right? Mm-hmm. Or just as, as laborers assisting the British Army, this is really going to be used to scare the Patriot cause. To scare and to weaken economically. Um, Because by having all of these uh, people liberate themselves, these plantation owners, you just lost your workers. And so once again, there's the agenda behind it Mm -hmm. uh, to really hit at them militarily, but also economically. So so certainly I would imagine for some Patriots, um, that's going to play like a significant role in the British are basically trying to use a slave insurrection against us. Absolutely. Right. There's, there's this one thing that I learned in this class that really changed my opinion. So you guys know the declaration of independence. I consider that, you know, like the birth certificate of our country. Right. Um, For those of you who may not be familiar with the declaration of independence, maybe as well as we are, there's more than just, you know, the very beginning of it. Yeah. If you read into it, there's actually 27 grievances yeah. for the king. And take a look at grievance number 27. Um, Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence. Where was Thomas Jefferson from? Virginia. He was from Virginia. Um, the 27th grievance calls out in particular uh, slaves and Native Americans. Um, and it blames King George for utilizing slaves and Native America, Native Americans against the colonists. I'll go ahead and uh, I'll, I'll read it here for those of you who might not have the, your, your own declaration handy. Um, so this is the 27th grievance. Um, he, speaking of King George III, he has excited domestic insurrections amongst us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages, whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, sexes, and conditions. Wow. So, like I said, so insurrection meaning both slave and then I guess native and as well. Natives, yeah. yeah. So the Declaration of Independence really establishes who's American, right? We are. We're last last episode we talked about British identity, right? Yes. How colonists viewed themselves as British. All of that changes with the Declaration. Yeah. They shed that British identity. And they put on that American hat, yeah. but now in the in the Declaration, they're calling out blacks and they're calling out natives as AKA. you're not one of us. Exactly. Right? And so I think we see this hmm. passed down through American history on why it's always us versus them. Yes. Wow, that's uh, I've never heard that thinking before because I know everyone always looks to the Constitution to look at who is an American, right? you know, and that's kind of how, as a history teacher, kind of the lens we see, the, the final definition yes. right, is yeah. within the Constitution, yes. but looking at the Declaration of Independence and seeing that, and it's not, you know, it's not where Americans are, they are, it's subtext. Yeah. That's Starts crazy. much earlier. That's wow. powerful, man. Yeah. So, um, so, yeah, so we have the Black Loyalists, as I'm going to call them, those who joined uh the british who listened to lord dunmore's call many of them are serving as laborers um one of the main hubs for them is new york city uh we know that 
Georgie Wash, Washy George takes that L, <laughs> right? Is it the Battle of Brooklyn or something? I believe so, yeah. And so the British occupy New York throughout their, the whole time of the war. And so that's going to be a main hub for these black loyalists. Um, wow. They're going to continue those, those labor jobs. Uh, one of the most famous is the Company of Black Pioneers. Okay. I'd never heard of that before. No. And uh, they just really were a group of men, women, and children who did whatever needed to be done. Um, now I want to backtrack a little bit back to Lord Dunmore, uh, after his failure of the Ethiopian regiment, um, he was still trying to utilize the regiment more, but like I mentioned, smallpox, um, smallpox ran rapid, mm. uh, through the South and Lord Dunmore was forced to abandon a lot of the black loyalists who had come to his aid. Um, and so he left 500 black loyalists behind uh, sorry, he took 500 with him. He left about 1,000 behind. Okay. Um, many of those 1,000 left behind died from smallpox, Ooh. but those who survived died at the hands of the patriots who uh, set fire to their huts. Wow. Wow. Um, a similar situation happened in South Carolina. Um, many escaped slaves stole canoes, and they went to Sullivan and Tybee Island, uh, but there they were butchered by patriots and many of them were re-enslaved. Um, and the purpose for that, and the quote says, to deter Negroes from deserting. So as an example, yeah, right? Well, I was gonna ask, I mean, obviously in war, you know, things happen, right? Violence happens, but the fact that in both instances, not just men with guns, but truly like people who are, you know, workers, yeah. men, women, children. People who are sick. Who are sick, yeah. right? clearly not in fighting spirit or, you know, yeah. preparation, right? Our, our butcher. So do you, you think in that case, the color of their skin? Is... Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Wow. And I, I start to view these, this group as refugees. Okay. Yes. They, they, they went from black loyalists to black loyalist refugees. Yes. And so, like you said, I think, I think color played a huge role in this. Um, and in the case, like this is happening in the South, so there might be some anger to that. Like, how dare you run away from us? Like, this is your punishment. Right. Yeah. How, how dare you believe that you can self-emancipate yourself? Right. So you could rise to some some other status than what I give you. Well, and, and you're a traitor. Yeah. But if you think about it from the other, like, why would I be loyal to you? You have yeah. enslaved me, right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, let's talk about Black Loyalist troops. Yes. So after Dunmore's failed ethiopian regiment there were others who said we could probably still do this um however many of them shot that down um and i think the the main thing was fear of arming blacks they yeah, were afraid yeah. that they would uh turn against them and so there are a few examples of african-american soldiers um but it was for limited altercations or alternatives it was basically when there was no other choice uh, the best example of this happens in Savannah, Georgia in 1779. Um, and at this point, France has joined the war. There's a Franco-American uh, siege on siege on Savannah. And many uh, black loyalists took up arms, about 200 of them okay. fought. Uh, they contributed to the victory. The British defeated the Franco-American uh, siege. And right away, many of the uh, citizens of Savannah say, yeah, we don't want them having guns. 
like take the guns away. And so, so they were immediately so they, disarmed. They helped wow. them save your town. Yeah, yeah. And then we don't like it. We don't like it. Mm-hmm. So right, right there, I think there's once again there's that prejudice that that plays a huge part. Now there were some black loyalists who said, "I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to do what I want." And the most famous is a man named Colonel Ty. Okay. So Colonel Ty um, was a slave, I believe, from New Jersey. Okay. And uh, he he came to Lord Dunmore's call, traveled down south, was a member of the Ethiopian regiment. It's a long way to travel. Yeah. And uh, after the after the disbandment of the Ethiopian regiment, he really just kind of was like a freelancer. He participated in the Battle of Monmouth, which we know is a huge battle uh, where George Washington and the Continental Army kind of really proves their own yeah. against the British. Um, and he's actually credited with cap with capturing Captain Elijah Shepard okay. of the Monument Militia, and he dragged him all the way back to New uh, to New York. <laughs> Wow. And so he's fighting alongside white loyalists at the Battle of, uh, of Monmouth. And uh, job too. after yeah. Monmouth, um, because the British military is not openly accepting black soldiers, uh, like I said, he goes along on this irregular band of mixed-race guerrilla fighters. And they travel all across New Jersey attacking mm-hmm. patriots, plundering their farms. And he literally becomes the living nightmare of many patriots. This yes. is exactly what they feared, right? Yes. Giving guns to black men. Right. Um, and so he earns this reputation as one of the most feared loyalists. Wow. Black or white. Um, unfortunately, he would die in a raid okay. in 1780. Um, but I think the words Colonel Ty, which was a self-given name, the okay. British did not grant him the rank of Colonel. Okay. Um, <laughs> but he had so much of a, a reputation that in the eyes of many patriots, that solidified their prejudice. Wow! So it, it's so he's going to become the, I guess, the the red herring of yes. the, the the like. Well, this is what happens, right? Um, but I, I, we should say that you you reference the rating, um, which these skirmishes, these kind of informal mm-hmm. little, almost like gang on gang battles, you know. Um, much of the war was that rather than formal army versus formal army. Yes. Um, and that's fascinating, you yeah. know? Um, and I think like you said, like that's going to become the, this is what happens. Right. So one last thing I want to talk about um, in terms of, of black loyalists. Um, so we know that they tried to be used as soldiers and the British really pushed against that. Um, we know that they worked as laborers, the other main position that a, a lot of black loyalists uh, did was as guides and spies. Mm-hmm. Um, being uh, formerly enslaved, they were used to being in the background. You know, that was uh-huh. kind of just the position of, of being enslaved. Is you, were, you were not to be seen. You know, you were not to be heard. And so they were used to being in this background role. Um, now, I came across a couple of spies in general that really I found fascinating. So if I didn't know this, but espionage, okay. Yeah. Is punishable by death. Like it is one of the sure. things during war that, you know, there are very little, uh, acts of forgiveness. Um, I believe, is it, uh, I'm blanking on his name. One of the, one of the first American spies during this time. 
It's not Nathaniel Green. Ooh. It's uh, Nathan Hale. Nathan Hale. Okay, that's going to be yeah. Okay. Nathan Hale was a Patriot spy, and I, I believe it was like 1776, super early in the war. He got hung by the British. Wow. So they don't play no games. Um, and so being a, a black loyalist spy was super dangerous. Um, now, there was one man, Benjamin Whitcuff. He was a free man, uh, and he worked as a spy for two years in New Jersey. Uh, unfortunately, he was caught, and he was captured, and he was hung for his crimes. After three minutes of dangling at the gallows, the British arrived and saved him. Oh, my goodness. So, super lucky. Literally oh hanging at the wow. gallows, wow. saved by the British. There has to have been some after effects of that. Oh, absolutely. I know. I, know. I remember... Um, this is only vaguely related, but like hanging is such a, you know, in our country, we have, you know, protection against, you know, uh, cruel, cruel and unusual punishment. But then the, the amount of people who were killed via hanging or were they tried to kill via hanging. I mean, hanging is not a fast no, or a no. sure thing. I mean, there's there's so many cases of people who had to be rehung. You know, it's, it's just terrifying. So he, he lives. He lived. Wow. wow. But I'm, there's definitely were others who weren't as lucky. Yeah. Uh, and then another interesting black spy that I found was uh, a man named Duncan. He was a Charleston slave. And uh, he traveled hundreds of miles by foot and canoe uh, from Charleston, I believe, to either Philadelphia or New York to supply them with information. So wow. these, these men, women, and sometimes children – who served as spies would travel hundreds of miles uh, risking their lives just to provide information so that they could gain their liberty. Um, and a lot of times it was just basic information like on American ships, how many ships are in the Harbor. Um, so they saw any opportunity and they took it. Your, your ability to move as a black person in America is much different than a white person. Oh yeah. And, you no, know, and everyone is, where are you going? Where right, are your uh, papers? Yes, like yes. you think about the majority of people, are white at this time and so you stick out and whether you're free or not they're questioning you all the time and to do so for a cause that you know really you know arguing about taxation yeah you know where where you were you're enslaved in that system anyways yeah you know what i mean i think it's so foreign to you right it's, It's, it's safe to say that you know it probably wasn't for loyalty of king george it was more of, you know, their personal liberty. So were there more, like, well-known um, black loyalists, like, spies or guides? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think one of the most well-known, and if and if he's not as well-known as I think he is, he definitely needs to be, um, is a man named Boston King. Yes. Um, Boston King, I feel like his, his story, his narrative, right, I feel like it really encompasses the entire black loyalist experience during this during this time. Um, so we know that the British became the liberators of the African-American or black condition, right? Join us and you'll be free. So Boston King uh, was a young man. I believe he's like a, 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 maybe a, a late teenager during this time period. And uh, he was in Charleston, South Carolina, where he was enslaved. And... Uh, one day, he he has the opportunity to go visit his his parents at a nearby plantation, and something goes wrong where he feels like he's going to be punished. 
I believe uh, someone stole some tools or something that he was supposed to be guarding. And so instead of being punished, he decides to run uh, to the British. Okay. And so he goes to the British as an act of self-emancipation, is welcomed with those opened arms, you know, wink, wink, right. you know. Yeah. Uh, and then right away he experiences a smallpox epidemic wow. where he himself has smallpox wow. on the verge of dying uh, where someone that he knew uh, growing up kind of nursed him, yeah. but the British left. They were like, we're out. You guys got smallpox. We're leaving. And so he is sitting there sick and the Patriots come by. Now, luckily for him, the Patriots don't want to deal with them because they know that they're sick and they just leave them. So he survives huh. because he had smallpox. Wow. Um, a couple days later, the British came back, got the survivors, which thankfully included Boston King. Um, and then from that point forward, he serves as like a personal servant and a courier for multiple officers. And during his time, he's really endangered. Uh, he's going on little missions supplying information and the patriots i believe at this time it's militia um they're in the surrounding areas and the militia compared to the continental army um they were much more ruthless towards uh black loyalists okay. uh, and so he was in a lot of a lot of danger um not just from the patriots but also from some british officers as well sure uh, yeah he's he's uh he's probably <laughs> Like, like, even if he is supporting their side, I'm sure they're still more than happy to apply some prejudice, you know? Yeah, so he, he built some good relationships with a couple of commanders, um, but there's, like, one mission where he's out on his own, and uh, there's, a, there's a captain, a British captain, who's, like, basically, like, I'll be your master. Like, come join me. And he's like, uh, no thanks. And so he eludes capture not only from Americans, but also other British. Um, huh. Basically, he's like, you know what? I'm tired of this whole war thing. I'm going to go to New York. And so he goes to New York City, where it's a hub for black loyalists under British control. And he tries to uh, make some money. You know, he tries to settle down at a, a civilian life. Okay, he's free. He's, you know, he's done his time. He served a little bit. And now he's, you know, trying to reap the benefits. But economic opportunities were still really slim. Yeah. Uh, for black men and women during this time period. And so he finds himself out on a pilot boat, you know, just trying to make some money where he's captured by an American whale boat and he's re-enslaved. And so, oh my yeah, all of that work. Yeah. All that work from South Carolina to, uh, uh, to New York and he gets re-enslaved. Now what happens to him after he gets re-enslaved? So after he's re-enslaved, uh, he, he becomes friends with another man who's re-enslaved and he's seen the, the condition that that man experiences and Boston's treated a lot nicer, but he knows that if he escapes, he's going to be imprisoned like, like this man that he's befriended. Um, but he finally realizes he's like, you know what? I got to take a chance. And late at night, he realizes that there are a couple guards who are standing watch over the river yeah. and one time he he realizes that they take breaks and at a time where where no one was there he goes to the river and he wades his way through the river at night and the whole time he's basically praying to god like if you deliver me 
you know, to the other side of this river, I will be your faithful servant. And he even wow. claims at one point he heard one of the uh, one of the Americans say, I thought I heard something. Someone's in the river. And then the other one was like, oh, no, it's nothing. So he does make it back to New York. He wades through a river in the middle of the night in darkness uh, to seek that British protection once again. Um, I believe by this time he was married. So he reunites with with wow. his wife. Um, and, he has no quit in him, does he? Yeah, he no. just, yeah. And we'll, I'll touch on this more, but Boston King's also going to be one of the many thousands that are evacuated from New York to Canada and eventually back to Africa. Wow. So I'll touch more on that uh, later. But um, I feel like at this point, I'm going to transition out of the British and, right. and to the Americans. But I do want to leave with with one little one little thought. Um, although the British were viewed as the liberators, I think it's important to realize that they never intended to provide liberty to all um, black people. Right. Um, the actions of Dunmore and later uh, the actions of like General George Clinton, who also issued their own proclamations, right. they were military strategies. Yes. Uh, they weren't convictions. They uh, happened to unleash economic ruin to the Patriot planner class, um, but also to limit the number of soldiers available to the American army. Right. And so, uh, they're also desperate to retain their white loyalist allies because um, I think it's important to know that some of these white loyalists also had slaves. Yeah. And, and Andrew, you mentioned this earlier. While they may have allowed liberty to certain um, black people, they still perpetuated the system. Um, and so they viewed blacks as property. They reinforced the return of runaway slaves to loyalist masters. So if, if you were a slave of a loyalist, and you answered Lord Dunmore's call, you got sent back to your master. Hmm. Um, there's one example. Uh, we know that one thing that the Americans did is they raided these loyalist plantations yep. and they yeah. stole their slaves. And one way that the British perpetuated slavery as a system is uh, they provided grants to their loyalists. Yeah. And so, for example, Major James, I believe it's Wayne's, um, of the British 63rd Regiment provided loyalist William Henry Mills of South Carolina, who had lost 57 slaves at the hands of Patriot militia, provided him 100 slaves. Whoa. So even more than he had. So Again, they definitely contributed. compensation of what they would see as property, which, you know, human beings. Yeah. Right? Wow. So uh, although their actions showcase the existence of racial prejudice, uh, thousands of black allies still risked everything to join yes. the king's cause. Uh, so I think we really have to view British as a double, the British as a double-sided coin. Right. You know, on one side they're the liberators, on the other side they're still the enforcers of slavery yes. in America. This, um, and I, I know we'll, and in the legacy section we'll have time to kind of draw parallels. Um, and of course there are differences, but in a lot of ways, this this reminds me of Native American groups in the French and Indian War, where neither side really yeah. cares that much about them no, if at all yeah. it's really just you know it, it's a it's an it's allies of convenience you know and it's who is going to give me the best benefit right yeah and so often those marginalized people stay marginalized even when they take mm -hmm. advantage of these so-called opportunities all right guys so i know if if you were lacking the knowledge on black loyalists you're probably going to be lacking the knowledge on Black Patriots. That's fair. That's fair to say. Because I know I did not know a lot of this. Like I said in the beginning, yeah. that little footnote at the bottom, 
offered freedom. And that was about it. So, uh, so let's get into it. Yeah. Lord Dunmore's proclamation. I've talked about this a lot. He really kind of forced the, the Americans, the Continental Army, he, he forced their hand, right? Sure. He's using blacks as soldiers, as laborers, as spies. So now the Continental Army and the Continental Congress, they're like, oh, crap. Like George Washington literally has a fear that if we don't use them, the British will. So shortly after Lord Dunmore's proclamation, which was November of 1775, I believe by like January of 1776, Continental Congress has already lifted their restriction and said, okay, we will accept free black men. Wow. And so we have the use of free black men in the Continental Army. Now, this was more common in the northern states. Sure. Okay. I think it's important to realize northern states, slavery is legal, but it's not an economic necessity. Right. Okay. And so you see a lot of manumissions. So you see a lot of uh, owners freeing their slaves okay. to join the army. And for some of it, it's because they realize their own hypocrisy. Like, hey, I'm fighting for liberty, and here I am holding slaves. So there are causes of that. I mean, that's well, that's progress yeah, I mean, to an extent, right? That's self-awareness. That um, so, we see, so we see a lot of that. Um, for some, it's as substitutes. Like, hey, I got drafted but I don't want to go serve. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to free you so you can go serve in my place. Mm -hmm. And so we see that as well. It's a little bit more selfish. Uh, but nonetheless, we have free black men fighting in the Continental Army. And I think it's important to realize the importance of this for those men themselves. And yeah. I think one of the key ways you can see this is through surnames. You know, um, a lot of times these, these men, when they were, when either them or their uh, ancestors were brought over from Africa. They were shed of all their their identity, right? Yeah. They were shed of their names. Yeah. And so, you know, they were usually named by their slave owner. Yeah. And so this provided them the opportunity to to re-identify themselves. Wow. And so you see last wow. names such as like Freeman, yes. Liberty, yeah. Freedom. These are very common names that you'll see in the muster rolls. I um, certainly had students who have those last names. Yeah. You yeah. know? Absolutely. Yeah. And so that's important. Um, but I also think it's, it's important to realize that unlike the British, this was strictly just men. Because remember, Lord Dunmore's proclamation was any servant or slave. Anybody. And so a lot of these men are leaving behind their family and they're still enslaved. So still enslaved. we'll come back to that later. So just keep that in mind. And so maybe the hope would be we get through this whole thing and I can, you know, buy their freedom or, you know. Or, yeah. yeah. Or maybe, you know, slavery will just... Be abolished. I wonder if Dunmore never made that proclamation if they would have ever done that in the Continental Congress. I, I mean, with the or way that I, they were going before, yeah. I highly doubt it. Yeah. Well, if, if, if the justification is we have to, because if not, the they'll British use them instead. To? I mean, that, that's that, that's certainly not a, that's not on the level of morals. That's <laughs> a strategy, right? Well, a question that's, I have now is were there any instances that you've heard of where there are Patriots fighting black loyalists. Um, I didn't come across any specific, and I think that's mainly because um, the British didn't use the black soldiers as much. Um, mm. I think one example was Yorktown. Yorktown, you know, the concluding battle of the revolution, right. there Colonel was a lot of black participation. Yeah. Um, so I, to backtrack, I think there was okay. at Yorktown. Sure. Um, I didn't go into super depth what about it. What a peculiar... Yes. 
It's like, <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to make the like, most. I'm of trying this. to. Dude, I'm trying from... to be freed through the Patriots. I'm trying to be freed through the Loyalists. Right. Like, we both want freedom. What are yeah. we doing here? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah, and um, I think it's obvious. So re- regions definitely played a, played a role. So sure. most black Patriots are going to be from the north. Most uh, black okay. Loyalists are going to be from the south. Yeah. And so I think that that distinction is important to realize. Um, that, you know, really it was, it was who's, they're both providing freedom, right. but because I'm in the North, I'm probably most likely going to join, right. Join the, well, that's the, the American cause was really Yeah. It's the hotbed of it. Right. Um, so we have, uh, Freeman in the continental army now. Um, but as the war continues, as it drags on, there's actually a decline in white participation, okay. um, in the North and the South. And so, you have recruitment officers being given the burden of recruiting soldiers. And uh, at this point, they don't care. Yeah. They're recruiting anyone. So you see a lot of, of, of black men recruited. And plus, I think it's important to note, these recruiting officers are getting compensation. They're getting a commission by the number of people they enlist. Huh. And so, so there's a financial incentive just of just bodies. enlisting anyone's bodies. Yeah. Wow. Now, now the the decline in white participation. I know, I know from... My my work on the on the white loyalist cause, a lot of that is due to just they're not getting anywhere. Yeah, you know? and and they, and they find out that the British are not much better than the, the Patriots. They're so afraid of. What about on the Patriots side? Though? I mean, the Patriots aren't really winning; they're surviving. Right, and so that definitely plays a, plays a role in the morale. Okay, um, and so I feel like a lot of people are like you talked about in your podcast only like was it a fifth were, were Patriots? Yeah. And so the support was kind of iffy to begin That's with, 20%, right? 20%, man. You're really, <laughs> you're really waiting like, okay, who's got the upper hand? Yeah. And if there's no one showing the upper hand. That's discouraging a lot of people from right. joining. Right. Um, yeah. So, so black Patriots take advantage of that. Sure. Um, and so hmm. we see a rise in uh, substitutions, but before I get to that, I do want to point out, that most black patriots served in the continental army um i believe by the conclusion of the war one-tenth of the continental army was black um wow. and the reason wow. is because the continental army had longer enlistment terms okay. um versus the and and it was national like you went further right. versus the militia the right. militia was much more segregated yeah um i i think that also because it was regional, right. that those regional prejudices, prejudices yeah, as well as like regional authorities uh, played a huge role. Right. But also a lot of white patriots joined the militias because shorter terms and I yes. stay closer to home. There's, and there's still that, there's still that, that like, you know, there, your, your only problem isn't just the war, right? Yeah. There's the economic piece. And, yeah. there's, and there's the class, the there's the, the class. Piece. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yes. So um, substitutions. One way that, Af- uh, black patriots found way into the war with substitutions. And so if you were drafted, you could either go and serve your term or you could hire someone to be in your place. And so we saw this with slave owners. Uh, hey, I'm going to free you and I want you to serve for me. Um, or we just saw this for people in the community. Uh, one example was a uh, man named Jacob Francis. He was a freedman uh, from New Jersey. And he took advantage of this as an economic opportunity because remember, soldiers were getting paid for their right. for their time, and uh, he earned seventy five dollars in Continental money, um, serving as a substitute. And then he later uh, purchased the freedom of his wife. Wow! So I don't know if 
those seventy-five dollars wow. were what he used, but yeah. chances are um, he used that yeah. as some type of savings. Thank goodness. So when they weren't serving as substitutes, um, they still experienced the racial prejudice. Sure. They lacked an identity, um, and I don't like saying this term, um, but often in documents they were listed as Negroes, like they weren't even given a name. They were just listed as a Negro. Sure. So they lacked that identity of being a person with a name right especially these this, these new names that they'd given themselves yeah. um and then even when they did serve um they were relegated to inferior positions okay. so they might have been uh like a private in the infantry yeah. so like the lowest of the low um or they were given non-arm bearing roles still because of that fear of sure oh, we don't know if we want to put a gun in your hand and unfortunately um i mean you think about the american civil war you know very similar black involvement in that it, it's still kind of you're you're kind of relegated to supporting roles and when you are used you're kind of used as like cannon fodder yeah kind of like we don't want to risk a really good experienced troops on that hill and so we're going to make you in first and second wave well even in the military history that's the kind of the status quo until even into the 20th century yeah i mean in world war ii i mean yep. like yeah. Af- african americans can fight as long as they're driving the separate. trucks, not carrying Born the guns. Separate. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, you sure. think of the the uh, Tuskegee Airmen, right? Yeah. And even them, uh, for for a, a decent part of their their uh, their service, they're being led by white officers. It's only later in the yeah. war that they finally, you know, people finally decide that they're capable of leading themselves as one of the absolutely most successful, daring, hardworking, you know, squadrons out there. I mean, so it's, and that's, that's, that's 1940s guys. This is the 1700s. I mean, that's a long time for there to be that precedent. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we see another policy shift. So because of the decline in, in white soldiers, Washington kind of has an epiphany. He's like, all right, let's go ahead and let's use enslaved men. This is three years after Lord Dunmore's proclamation. So 1778, Washington's finally saying, we will allow free black men and enslaved black men. Um, but one caveat, those enslaved black men, the compensation goes to their owners. Yeah. Now, um, are they are they going to be freed? They'll be freed, but the, the army's still going to pay. Sure. They're going to pay the owners for, quote unquote, their property, right? So I can imagine if you are a slave owner and you can get paid, to send your enslaved peoples to war, you're going to cash in. Yeah, it it definitely kind of eased the the fears. Okay, I'm at least getting something out of this, right? I'm getting getting money that I can replace my property. Well, and and certainly in a, and we talked about this last time, in in truly a civil war, I'm sure the normal economic uh, bottom line of the the average, you know, plantation slave owner was was disrupted by this. And so this income could have been fairly lucrative. Yeah. Right? So this was, this was definitely a compromise. Right. Um, yeah. And so now we have wow. free black men and enslaved black men. Uh, the now, most famous, go ahead. Go oh, ahead. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, question. Like I know um, in kind of my own looking at this, I, I, I ran into the issue of like Patriot pensions after the war, like mm-hmm. people who, you know, they were promised X amount of money. And then of course the, continental congress doesn't necessarily have this money and then and some of that like lingers like decades 
into America's founding. Yeah. If you're black, were they also given pensions? Were they? You're one step ahead. Okay. Am I jumping so ahead here? You're, okay. you're just one step, but you're on the right track. So uh, yes. the most famous group of enslaved black soldiers fighting for the Patriots is the 1st Rhode Island Regiment. Uh, sometimes it's referred to as the Black Regiment. Um, it was based out of Rhode Island, uh, which is kind of funny because Rhode Island, I think for most of the war, was under British hands. Okay. Um, but nonetheless, the call was made, hey, we're accepting enslaved men. And so many, I think around like 200 uh, African-American men joined that regiment. Oh. Um, and it wasn't fully the, a Black Regiment, though. Um, sure. It did have whites. So huh. one interesting cool. thing is during the American Revolution, the army was integrated. Wow. Um, you guys, are you familiar with the famous cartoon? Um, I believe it was drawn by a French soldier depicting the different soldiers of the revolution huh. on the Patriot side. You must call it up to Google it. Uh, just, just Google uh, uh, four American soldiers revolution. Once you see it, you'll be like, "Oh yeah, I've seen that." It's a cartoon. There's four. There's four men. They're all dressed differently. Sounds familiar. I'm trying to remember. Yep, that right there. Uh, Yeah. So the the guy all the way on the left, yes, the black man is a member of the first Rhode Island. I must say, his hat, or rather helmet, is fabulous. Well, they were uh, (laughs) quoted uh, by. I believe another Frenchman later on before York, before Yorktown, um, because they participated in that as one of the best dressed of all the uh, units, Dude, all the regiments. They're crushing a man, that cream, like off-white uniform. Man. Yeah. So I believe it's, you have the first Rhode Island, and then I believe that's your, your normal con- uh, continental soldier. Then you have your militia and then the French. I'm just really into these outfits right now. I'm just thinking uh, this might this whole like colorful. For those of you who don't know, what we're talking about Google. <laughs> I googled uh, four American soldiers revolution. Go to images. You'll see what we're talking about. You'll see the um, the black. The, you see the the Rhode first, Island. Yeah, first, first Rhode Island. First Rhode Island. And you, so you'll, you'll see what we're talking about. But I'm just thinking these colorful outfits might work when you're fighting <laughs> in straight lines with muskets. Yeah. But. That would be a heck of a target once you have a rifle. Yes. You know, so I know in the American Civil War, after like the first year, they kind of abandoned the super bright flamboyant ones because now they have technology that makes you a very easy target. And so, right. Super off topic, but those outfits are fabulous. Yeah. So that's the first Rhode Island Regiment. Um, they're a key fixture in the Continental Army. Um, there's the Battle of Rhode Island. They drive back the Hessians. Um they're present at Cornwallis' surrender at Yorktown. And then even after the war, because after Yorktown, the war didn't end, they saw combat at uh, Fort Oswego, okay. where many of them lost fingers and limbs. Wow. Uh, um, data from the first Rhode Island shows that their term, their term was very difficult, their time. Um, they served longer terms than white soldiers. Uh Usually white soldiers maybe served like three years. Yeah. For a black soldier, it was more of like five years to whenever the war is over. Is this just in the 1st Rhode Island Regiment or just in general? In general. Um, but because this was like the most predominant African-American or black regiment, it was definitely a part of okay. that. So it's, it's seen as because we're freeing you, we can expect more yeah. out of you. Or, or maybe, maybe we know that 
you don't have a whole lot of opportunity, and so we know we know we can get it out of yes. you. Yes, like farm right? is still exploitation. Yeah, they're <laughs> yeah. Ex- they're exploiting them for sure. Yeah. Um, desertion was high. Um, about eighty-two deserters re- uh, left during just from the uh, First Rhode Island Regiment. Okay. The regiment disbanded in seventeen eighty-three um, at the conclusion of the war, and uh, like many white soldiers, they too were promised you know pensions okay. and land. Um, unfortunately. It would be until the 1820s when uh, 149 of the men would be given their land and promises and pensions. So not even all of them. Now how many? Not out of how many? You, you said that uh, earlier. They were around 200. Okay. So about 149. Okay. Uh, and for those who had already died, some of their uh, their descendants got the pension. Okay. Um, so yeah, there's definitely a delay. Right. Whereas you know a white. Yeah, because 1820s, I mean, and you think about life expectancy, you could very possibly a, not be alive. Yeah, we're talking 40, yeah. 40 years after this. Yeah. And you're finally getting land or a pension. And if you're 20 years old, I mean, you're 60. You, you, you could have grandkids. Yeah. Yes. Well, and, and, and 60, not everybody reached 60, I think. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, no, there's no guarantee. I mean, wow. So, uh, it's a long time. So that was that was in the north. Um uh, Let's talk about black patriots in the South. You know, um, the South has a huge population of African Americans, right? Because sure. of slavery, yeah. uh, and a lot of them were willing to participate in the cause, right? Because yeah. for them, it's not about which side; it's about liberty, right? And so, um, some patriots wanted to exploit this, just like the British had. And one of these men, you may have heard of him, John Lawrence. Okay. If anyone familiar with Hamilton. Uh, he's one of the key figures in the musical Hamilton. I will say, from having traveled with Jonathan, Hamilton is very near and dear to his heart. I love Hamilton. <laughs> I love it. Uh, awesome. So, uh, a little bit about John Lawrence. John Lawrence was uh, from South Carolina. He was the son of a slave-owning uh, patriot congressman. Okay. Uh, and so he grew up surrounded by um, enslaved men and women. But he was what we would consider an abolitionist. Okay. Very early on, he 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 wants to create this black battalion of soldiers, much like the Ethiopian Regiment or yeah. the First Rhode Island Regiment um, in the South. He's also one of George Washington's closest aides, so he's right in G Dub's ear uh, about this. Nice. And finally, Lawrence gets Congress on his side, um, and the Continental Congress recommends to Georgia and South Carolina the recruitment of 3,000 black soldiers to be raised at its expense. Congress is going to pay for this. Wow. So you would think, right, that Georgia and South Carolina would be like, okay. And y'all, Congress is broke at the time. Yes. So yeah. it's a there is deal. no money. And uh, Cong- uh, those, those, those cities, those states, or yeah, they're states at this point, they say no. Uh, they would rather them be used as laborers for the city's defenses. Oh, my gosh. So – John Lawrence failed in his idea of of turning these enslaved men into firm defenders of liberty. Well, and and if just to step back real quick, right? Like, this is what year again? This is seventeen, uh, like seventeen seventy nine. Okay, somewhere so it, around it's, there. It's in that. It's kind of it's really in that point where they need support, right? And it's like, it's not like we've had a couple skirmishes, and like maybe. 
the British will let us off the hook, mm-hmm. you know, rebellion put down. This is a this is a civil war now. If we lo- if we the Patriots lose this, we will all be considered traitors and treated as such. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But rather than do what we can at Congress's expense to advance that cause, we're instead going to promote our prejudice. Yeah. Right. So, and, and take the risk of, 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 of losing the war by not having the support. Yeah, sure. That whole idea of by any means necessary does not factor in here. Right. Yeah, that prejudice, like you said, outweighs that. Um, so uh, it's obvious that northern blacks and southern blacks had very different opportunities. Um, but one thing I also want to point out, the southern blacks, um, because their leaders – you know, South Carolina, Georgia did not want to utilize them. They pushed more for uh, recruitment of white soldiers. And one of the way that they did that was by offering these enslaved people as bounty. And so they do like a complete opposite. Congress is saying, arm these black men. And these southern states are saying, we're going to use them as bounty to encourage more white enlistment. And so... Um, so that's going on. And then you're going to see the use of substitutions here, um, where you're going to have masters allow, um, their slaves to form as substitutes. However, some of these Southern masters are not going to be, um, living up to the promises that the Northern ones, it was very common. And I'll talk a little bit about this later for these, when the war is over for these Southern black men to return back and be expected their freedom only to be given shackles. So very, very different. Who are you going to complain to? Right. Yeah. You know, so for a Southern slave, the best chance was to run away for the British. My goodness. Now real quick, I know you you have stuff to cover. Walk me through the bounty situation again. I don't know if I fully understand Um, that. So basically any soldier usually has some sort of reward, right? Whether that's land or pension for fighting. Yeah. For, for joining. So on top of land or pension, some of these southern states were like, hey, we'll give you a slave. Wow. And so um, (laughs) where those slaves came from, they came from maybe captured loyalist slaves or just runaway slaves that had been recaptured. Uh, They were going to be used as basically a prize for white soldiers. That's how desperate they were to retain slavery yeah but there's they're still desperate for soldiers because they're willing to you know provide these white men with an extra incentive risk assessment yeah what's the bigger risk losing the war or losing slavery the bigger risk to them was losing Losing slavery slavery. absolutely well and and just so disposable right it's just well we got a couple you know and you know i think of you know you think of like the 1850s the dred scott case you know where where they they reaffirm that that black people in america are property you know it's just to hear about it so blatantly here it just it really it sets america on the path you yeah. know yeah yeah so i know i've been talking a lot there's a couple more things i want to talk about no, this, this is, is so good like, this is, these rabbit holes man I, i'm asking questions because i'm like this is i've learned i've guys I've learned so much this episode. Yeah. So, I think more than any other episode. Yeah, no joke. Yeah. So remember how this is called parallel paths, right? Yes. Hopefully you've seen a lot of parallels, right? The British try to use them as soldiers. Yeah. 
the Americans are using them as soldiers, laborers, all of that. Um, another parallel path is spies, espionage. Yeah. And so um, the Patriots are going to utilize uh, black people as spies. And one of the most famous, and you've probably heard of him, is James Armistead. Yeah. So James Armistead was a Virginia slave. And I found this really fascinating. Um, he entered into the service of Gen- uh, Major General Lafayette. Okay, the French major general. Yeah, French, yeah. Uh, Once again, watch Hamilton if you haven't watched yeah. it. Um, he enters into Lafayette's service in the spring of 1781. And uh, basically, Lafayette's going around saying, hey, I need people to join me. And so Armistead's master lets him join Lafayette, and he has a very dangerous job. At this time, Cornwallis, the leader of the southern British troops, right. is making his way into Virginia. Um, an, uh, another spy who's in Virginia, you may have heard of him, Benedict Arnold. Okay, <laughs> Benedict Arnold, famous turncoat, yeah. uh, was general a general in the Continental Army. Uh, felt like he wasn't being rewarded for all of his deeds. Uh, he also had a wife who, <laughs> Peggy Shippen. If you don't know about her, she was in his ear. She had a British lover who was uh, Major John Andre, mm-hmm. who was a British spy who got hung. It's fascinating. Um, if you haven't watched Washington's uh, Spies Turn, it's a great show. I've heard it's great. I, I, uh, it's on my list. So Arnold did get slighted. Yes. On a couple occasions. <laughs> yes, he, he did. Uh, but he was very arrogant too. Yeah. So go ahead. I, I was going to say, we, we, we can't spend too much time on this, <laughs> but uh, I always thought it was ironic that a certain, uh, that some people still like to talk about how proud they are of other traitorous people uh, <laughs> from our country's history, uh, but not Benedict Arnold. Yeah. Um, Too soon. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, soon. 1860. <laughs> 1865. 65, yes. So, uh, so Benedict Arnold is in uh, Virginia at Portsmouth, and uh, Armistead, James Armistead, his task is to, is to infiltrate Arnold's camp, and he does. Uh, he pretends to be a slave, and uh, while he's there, he uncovers Cornwallis's movements. This is big, guys. This is this is crucial. He <laughs> reports back to Lafayette oh my gosh. that uh, Cornwallis is planning on going to Yorktown. And at this oh point, oh my god, at this is it, guys. At this point, uh, <laughs> Washington and the French allies—they're not sure. Washington is planning on invading New York because that's where he thinks the next big conflict is okay. going to be. Yeah, yeah. And so Armistead provides uh, at least confirmation of this idea that you know they're going to yorktown and uh the americans they the americans and the french allies meet cornwallis and the british at yorktown um spoiler spoiler alert it's an american victory it's huge it essentially ends the fighting in well and the the french get on on the naval side Mm -hmm. right and so like really like this is i mean they're swinging for the fences here Right. Yeah. If they pick the wrong spot here, I mean, it could be detrimental to everything. Right. And so the fact that that this all hinges on a black man. Yeah. And how do you right? and how do you think he's rewarded? I oh, mean, man. I don't really <laughs> like it, this. The, 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 there's one constant thread of this podcast. It's that it's never what it should be. So James Armistead. After your town, he's forced to return to life as an enslaved man. 
What? Uh, that makes me because angry. His role his, his as a though. his role as a spy made him ineligible from the Act of 1783, which only emancipated slave soldiers. Wait. So why he's not? But he's he's. How is that not considered a soldier? Spies are different. I, I'm not. I'm not a military expert, but just but the he's way serving that, with Lafayette. Yeah, but like just the just, way that spies are treated is is much different. However, there's a glimmer of hope. Well, okay, there better be. He wins the war for that. <laughs> so uh, Armistead he petitions to Congress for years. Okay, so Yorktown was 1781. Yeah, uh, he's petitioning to Congress. There's no change in his legal status. It would take a personal letter from Lafayette himself. Yeah, Lafayette learned that Armistead was enslaved and was outraged. Yes. And so Lafayette wrote to Congress. This. I mean, it's... And Armistead finally gains his freedom, 1787. Wow. Now, a cool a cool part of the story. Um, Lafayette uh, would return yeah. to the United States later on. The post-French Revolution. 1824. Right? Yeah. So Major General Lafayette returns to... Uh, what is now the United States meets Armistead, okay. embraces each other like they are friends. Yeah. And Armistead, as an act of uh, gratitude, changes his name to James Armistead Lafayette. And so wow. the two Lafayettes wow. embrace each other. Uh, James Armistead Lafayette was able to live the remainder of his life as a free man, as a husband, as a father, as a landowner. But his acts alone were not what accomplished that. It right. still took a white man of substantial military status yes. to advocate for him. I mean, like, and, and I would say on the, the, the top ten list, of, when you think about yeah. you know, people involved in, in the, the military side of the revolution. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I'm glad it, I guess I'm glad it, that his story ends up positively, but I mean... Not for a while. Yeah, no. I mean it's. It definitely still shows the the bias and the prejudice that was there because his actions, which were, you know, d- war defining, still did not was it his lead to his emancipation. Granted that to him, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So that's not it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm speechless. It's. I'm really speechless. I, I had heard the name before, and I and I'm kind of upset that I didn't know it before. That's no. That's a. I didn't know. Now, more. now, what is his name again? Just so I remember. James Armistead Lafayette. That's powerful. And so, so that's what he would be popularly remembered as yep. because of that that name change. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we should say those who are able to become free men because of that, the ones who stay in in America from the 1790 naturalization law, they are not going to be able to vote. No. And I'll talk more about that, dude. <laughs> a little bit. You go into naturalization laws? Uh, not as much. I I, I kind of skimmed the surface this of it. This is why but... your paper's so long. Yes. <laughs> yes. This is great. I found it very difficult to find a stopping point, sure. unfortunately, because the prejudice just keeps happening. Yeah. Well, but, I mean, this could easily be a, a further project. Yeah. Them. So you know what I mean? It's it could be a you're... whole book. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there are books. Oh, I use them in this paper. Foreshadowing. All right. So buy Jonathan's book in, you know, two to three, four to five years. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, uh, I know we're short on time, so let's keep going. Uh, we're going to power through this. I will say one experience that was parallel for both Patriots and, and Black Loyalists, yeah. where there was uh, fewer prejudice, okay. was a sailor's. 
and I think that it's important to note that even before the American Revolution, black sailors were very common um, in colonial America. Um, in both merchant ships, fishing ships, and even the Royal Navy, black soldiers, uh, sorry, black sailors were a common place. Now, um, would that just be because they needed people to be sailors? And- it's, it was shortages. Okay. I mean, think about it. Brit- Britain was always in some sort of military conflict. Pretty much. And yeah. so <laughs> yeah. uh, shortages, of course. Um, so I think that's important to note that that was one area where prejudice wasn't as, as much. Um, but also, I think my own analysis of this, the difference between black sailors and black soldiers, black soldiers have guns. And yeah. so they're, black sailors are a little bit less of a threat, I yeah. think, in the eyes of your Anglo, you know, American um, yeah. compatriots. And, and if there is some kind of a, an insurrection, right, it's, it's on a ship, yeah. right? Not yeah, on, it's contained. Right, it's not, not on a land mass where that can, that can spread. And right? there weren't a, they weren't there in the masses. Like, okay. there would be, like, a handful yeah. of black uh, sailors, sailors on the ships. So right. Right. less of a threat. Um, I do want to just point out that during the war, uh, it was notated that Virginia had at least 140 black sailors serving in a fleet at various capacities. Uh, so there were there were a lot in Virginia. It was oh. very common. Um, however, while the prejudice was limited, it wasn't non-existent. Sure. Um, for example, so uh, some sailors, whether if they were slaves, they weren't uh, they weren't rewarded or compensated. Those went to the owners. Um, and then also the biggest threat came from uh, from attack from other other ships hmm. because these black sailors would be treated as plunder. Um, whereas if your enemy captured, you might be arrested. Right. But if you were black, you were sold into enslavement. Yeah. So that treatment was 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 vastly different from their white peers. And that's similar to when you talked about um, the loyalist communities uh, who were slaughtered, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, versus like taking like POWs, right? Where, where they, those could be, I mean, in, in almost every war that there's a trading of, 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 of captive soldiers, yeah. right? Yeah. But, but if you're black, it sounds like you maybe didn't qualify yeah. for that. So I think the biggest threat you faced was if your ship was captured. Right. Um, because as a black man, you would be subject to, to enslavement. Wow. So let's talk about women. Oh, my goodness. So black women. Black women. The uh, most marginalized group in American history. Yes. Sure. Let's yeah, do it. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think it's uh, important to note that the role of, of black women was more prominent on the loyalist side. And that was just because the British were more opening to anyone because we saw those families answer Dunmore's proclamation. So it, it goes right? back to Dunmore. It's just it goes the, back to Dunmore. The whole family. The whole right? family okay. going together. So obviously, right off the bat, there are more black women aligned as loyalists. Um, so, yeah. And most of them were southern slaves because of the area uh, of where Lord Dunmore's proclamation was happening. Sure. Um, they weren't permitted to fight, um, and they weren't really freed by their masters, so they had to run away. Um, now, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, that for these southern black loyalist women, 
running away was super dangerous, yeah. right? The family unit that had been established was was yeah. in danger. And so they risked, uh, they would risk their, their life. They would risk the, the, the breaking of their family unit for that, for that freedom. Right. Um, but that was, that was only a minor group of those black women. A majority of black women did not take that risk. They, they wanted to secure the family unit, even if that meant the continuation of their enslavement. Well, and it makes sense. You're, you're not just thinking about your own future, but it's, you know, can you guarantee the future of the rest of your family too? Yeah. I mean, that's yeah, kids. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We, we know just, I mean, just from a, a logistical standpoint, people today who are, who are married, have a house, have kids are more likely to stay where they are. Right. Just yeah. because, you know, those logistics, right? Yes. Going on a trip or vacation with a child is already challenging enough, let alone escaping slavery. I cannot imagine. Yeah. This. So I, I could kind of see what you're saying where that draw to just kind of stay, stand strong, stay firm right. where you're at. Right. Wow. So many of them stayed neutral um, in the southern plantations. A lot of women were left behind, a lot of children. Um, but those that did ran, those that did run away usually went to the loyalist side. Um, now, black patriot women, most of them, the the way that they participated was in the camps. Um, we talked about how free black men were allowed to join the Continental Army, and then eventually enslaved black men, um, but they almost always left behind their families who remained enslaved. Sure. Um, so you don't see a lot of uh, enslaved patriot women you see uh free patriot women those that have the ability to follow their husbands uh i didn't know this until Hmm. recently that women would follow the continent's army white and black like they would they would form these camps that follow the army and they would do things like laundry uh they would do like menial things and black women were a part of that Wow. Um, one example, a, a woman named Judith Lines. Okay. She was a free black woman. Uh, she spent four months in the Hudson Highlands laundering for her husband's okay. unit. Um, so that's one way that free black women assisted. They did those those minor tasks for the army. Um, I think it's important to note that Washington did not like the women being there at all, yeah. black or white. Okay. Uh, and so, but it, like, I, for they're a distraction. Is that his? yeah? Okay. Um, they were distraction. They were very untidy. Uh, he just didn't like it. Uh, well, I, I know from other like things we've we've read and talked about that you know when when he first assumes command, you know he arrives and he's used you know from his own British experience in in, in the army, you know, trained soldiers, yeah. drills, etc. And he kind of arrives with a ragtag group, and he's frustrated by that, of course. And so I could see how he sees any outside factor as yeah. not good for yeah. for army. Yeah. And so they're not welcome there, white or black, but um, because of their presence, like the men, the men are there, or, or they boost the morale of the men. Washington allows allows them to okay. stay. Um, but they, like I said, they do jobs like uh, laundering. They build roads. They build fortifications. Like they're put wow. to work. Some pretty big uh, stuff, yeah. <laughs> so that's just kind of black uh patriot and loyalist women in general yeah let's go into specific there's two black patriot women that i want to talk about okay um the first is uh is a woman named mumbet have you guys heard of mumbet no um so she was a slave 
She was a slave that was owned by a Massachusetts judge named John Ashley. Um, And being the slave of a judge meant that she heard a lot of legal things, right? She knew what was going on in terms of the law. Right. And uh, one day she was struck by her mistress with a heated shovel. Now, I do want to say that uh, she wasn't the one intended to be struck. A heated shovel? A heated shovel. Yeah. She jumped in front of uh, the intended target and it like cut her, cut her arm. And so after that, she ran away. And uh, he upon, hit me with a shovel. Yeah, going, yeah. Man, no joke. Upon yeah. running away, uh, she, she came across a man named uh, Theodore Sedgwick. You, uh, do you okay. guys know who Kira Sedgwick is? Wife of Kevin Bacon? No. This is, this is her descendant. Uh, oh. It's actually, you know, the name of our county. Yeah. Comes from the Sedgwick. same. Yeah, it comes from the same. Who huh. is? Uh, yeah, I don't know if it's exactly him. It's his. It's it's one of his descendants who's a Civil War general. Union. Yeah, right. yeah. We should say. So yeah. same family. Um, he was a lawyer, and so Mum Beck comes to him, and uh, Sedgwick. She knew him because he had worked with her former uh, master. Correct. And she basically comes to him and argues her own case. She said that because Massachusetts had recently enact, enacted their state constitution, which declared all men were born free and equal. Yeah. She heard this. Yeah. You know, oh by, by having that, you know, don't be seen, don't be heard, she's soaking in this information. Yeah. And so Sedgwick's like, you know what? You've got a great case. So Mumbet, along with another Ashley slave, a man named Brum, Brum or Broom, uh, he takes on their case, goes to court, wins. And, oh, yeah, wins. And so Mumbet... Uh, is granted her freedom and she really sets a precedence in massachusetts that would eventually diminish the institution of slavery in the state and lead to its gradual emancipation um as an act of her emancipation she adopts the name elizabeth freeman so we see that once again uh she her i know right it's crushing she she goes to work for the sedgwick family right um paid of course she establishes a career as a successful nurse and a midwife um, wow. So now again, like alternative history, it's it's too bad this wasn't like a federal. Yeah. You know what I mean? Case. And I guess this is this is like pre-constitution. Yeah. So like the role of the it federal was courts wasn't really like there or established yeah. or you know just judicial review is kind of a shaky you know. But like you know to think about alternative history, right? If that had if the constitution had existed and it had been argued at the federal case, right? That could have diminish the role of slavery legally absolutely from our nation's beginning well i wonder how loud these or well known these cases were to the framers of the constitution well, i'm sure you know, sure john adams was well aware of this you know being having from Paris, having right? having wrote the massachusetts state constitution I said, yeah, a being himself, and yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah so Elizabeth Freeman, as she was now known, she definitely evoked the consciousness of Massachusetts. But like you guys were saying, in terms of the rest of the nation, unfortunately, thousands of others remained enslaved. Yeah. Um, another woman I want to talk about, she might be a little bit more well-known, um, Phyllis Wheatley. I was literally just Googling her, dude. Uh, the poet. The poet. Yeah. So Phyllis Wheatley um, was born in Africa and sold into slavery as a young child. She was given the name Phyllis because that was the name of the ship that kidnapped her. Um, she was purchased by a wealthy Boston merchant named John Wheatley. Um, now, the Wheatleys are they are going to be unlike your normal slave owners. 
because they actually educated Phyllis. Right. Um, they made sure she was educated in English. And they encouraged her to write. I believe. Yeah. Yeah. They educated her in English, classical literature, history, and the scriptures. Um, at 12 years old, she became crafting poems and corresponding with uh, influential persons. Like, she gained the attention of Voltaire. Like, the Voltaire. Yeah. Um, and she uh, served as a... As a, She gained the patronage of the English Count, Countess of Huntingdon. So, she had some <laughs> oh influential... Some influential... Uh, wow. Friends. And like Andrew said, uh, her, her family definitely encouraged her writing. Now, one thing to note, despite her international praise she failed to achieve the support from her fellow colonists. And so at one point, the Wheatleys are trying to publish her writings, yeah. and they cannot find a publisher in the colonies. Who's going to publish the, the work yeah. of a black woman? So right. they go to England, and they find a publisher in England uh, where she's vastly accepted. Um, right. This, this, this uh, Her owners, are they very much do not seem to fit the mold yeah, Being, but I mean, they're still she's still their slave, but they're advocating for her, and now they they free her eventually. They do, um, right? I definitely think a lot of it is advocating. You know, maybe her wealth is our wealth. Okay. Um, yeah, I also think it's important to point out that the Wheatleys are loyalists. Okay. They become loyalists. The loyalists in Boston's kind of sure. kind of weird. Um, by 1773, she's freed. So she's she's freed even before revolution. Um, wow. Um, however. She's, she goes back to Boston after being in London, and she's in the hotbed of the revolution, the hotbed of, of liberty, right? And even though she was the former slave of who would become loyalist, she becomes deeply immersed in the liberty cause. Like, a lot of her writings talk about liberty. Um, she has a letter, and I wish I had time to quote it, and I wish I had it here, but uh, if, you, if you have time, uh, read Phyllis Wheatley's letter to George Washington. And the language that she uses to George Washington, like, showcases his virtue uh, as, a, as a leader. So she's definitely, like, pro-patriot. There's yeah. no hiding that. Yeah. Um, however, her status, her skill, and even her, her uh, personal progression of American patriotism um, was not enough to see her be successful. Um, wow. When she went for round two of publications, yeah. she could not find any support. Um, I think by this time, having you know heavily sided with the Patriots, she lost a lot of her her loyalist support. Right. Um, she lost a lot of her patriotage, and so she could not uh, publish her second work. And so she actually dies in. Uh, She's thirty one, I think. Uh, yeah, in seventeen eighty four. She dies impoverished. It's a year uh, after the warrings. Yeah. Now, oh the gosh. interesting thing is, despite her death, there was growing interest in her work and her status as a black female poet in England. Like, that continued. Hmm. So, it, it definitely shows the difference in the prejudice. I'm not saying the English were perfect. Right. Obviously, they were maybe, they were a little bit more yeah. willing to uh to work with her but um, it, it definitely appears that americans were not yet ready to support a free not, black woman not there yet right so well i guess if you think about just slavery as an institution in 
the British colonies in America compared to the presence of, of black slavery in, in Britain. Right. 1781. Yes. <laughs> Battle of Yorktown, man. Yorktown, man. And we should say, like, you know, last major uh, conflict of, you know, the in the continental United States, at least, for, for the American Revolution. But, you know, the, the Treaty of Paris isn't until two years later. Yes. It's the beginning of the end. Yes. Right. Beginning right. of the end. The fighting is going to stop for the, you know, average American right. for the most part. The French are still going to engage the British in the in on the seas i think with spain, with spain as well right mm-hmm. we often forget that spain was involved right um so yeah yorktown uh september 1781 um it's gonna mark the conclusion like we said and i think it's important to note that um historians identify that it was witnessed firsthand by thousands of black loyalists and patriots uh, we know that general cornwallis by this time his troops uh included well over a thousand black soldiers and laborers. So the British, you know, they had some of those few black soldiers, but most of them were, were laborers, uh, as well as an unorganized group of black refugees that followed the army. Right. I'm guessing at this point, probably much like uh, the British use of loyalists and the Southern strategy, they kind of realized like this could have been a tool the entire time. Yes. And so it kind of, while it may have been kind of too late to really matter, they 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 lash on to any and all help. Right? Yeah, they, they may not openly be like encouraging it, but they're not discouraging right, it right. at this point. Right. Um, and so the the Patriots, like like we mentioned earlier, thanks to James Armistead Lafayette, was they were aware of the British movements to Yorktown, and so they quickly organized and moved the Continental Army down. Um, there was a man named Baron Ludwig von Klosen, and uh, he was there observing the the Patriot forces. And I mentioned this earlier. Um, he he noted that the Patriot forces included roughly fifteen hundred black soldiers, most of whom were uh, from the First Rhode Island Regiment. He's the one that complimented them on on their dress, how they were dressed. So okay. Nice. Okay. Uh, and so. One thing I want to make clear is it's obvious that the Americans won the Battle of Yorktown. Right. Um, but I really think the true losers of Yorktown were not the British, but were the black people okay. that were there. Wow. Uh, if you study Yorktown, modern historians are, are talking a little bit more about the the importance of like malaria. Um, right. I know we talked about that in our class, Andrew. Um, the whole article on mosquitoes. Yeah, <laughs> mosquitoes were, were really prevalent in the South. And they had devastated a lot of Cornwallis's army. The British had been there yeah. longer than the uh, Patriots had, and so they ca- had kind of time for it to absorb. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so, so you have malaria as a factor. There's also outbreaks of smallpox still uh, mm-hmm. that are hitting uh, the groups. And the groups that's going to get hit the most is that group of black refugees that have followed the British. Mm-hmm. Um, so Yorktown's really a siege, right? Right. The Patriots are 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 sieging and so obviously they're running low on food supplies and general cornwallis is forced with the decision who do i give food to do i give food to my british soldiers yeah or do i give food to all these refugees and you could probably guess who he chooses Ugh, he, he chooses right. his soldiers yeah. and uh, he f- cast out hundreds of black refugees uh, out into essentially no man's land 
and uh, great <laughs> in no man's land. And we're talking men, women, and children. Yeah, um, they wow. die from starvation, they die from disease, um, and some were even recaptured and and uh, re-enslaved. Um, there's a Hessian captain named Johann Ewald, and he records in his diary. He says, "Quote: We drove back to the enemy all of our black friends whom we had taken along to despoil the countryside." We had used them to good advantage and set them free. And now with fear and trembling, they had to face the reward of their cruel masters. Wow. Um, this is corroborated by an American soldier, a man named Joseph Plum Martin. Um, he says, he describes the scene of the dead and starving. Um, he explains how, quote, ears of burnt corn in the hands and mouths, even of those that were dead. So, not only do you have the dead from the battle littering the field, no. you also have these black refugees. Mm. It's such a powerful, um, I think just, I mean, it's kind of, it's a great example of just where the average black person found themselves in the yeah. middle, in right? The, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, middle of no man's land. So <clears throat> following Yorktown, um, it's a, it's a Patriot victory. The British, uh, they retreat. They return to their strongholds, which are New York City, uh, Charleston, and Savannah. Those are their three main strongholds. And uh, eventually they will wait there for, for peace negotiations. Um, now, there's a lot of questions in the, in the minds of, of black people during this time, both patriot and loyalist. Obviously, you can, you can probably guess the loyal, black loyalists are probably freaking out because it, the writing's kind of on the wall. Like, right. The, the Americans are winning. But I found a really interesting article from a man named Cato. Uh, he described himself as a poor Negro. Uh, he had fought on the uh, Patriots. He had fought on, no, he, he was a Patriot. He received his freedom through a court decision. Um, but he wrote in a Philadelphia newspaper. Mm -hmm. This is what he wrote. Uh, he said, to make a law to hang us all would be merciful. Whoa. Yeah. So in, in comparison of being re-enslaved, he said to make a law to hang them would be more merciful. Um, and he also, in, in his article, uh, when compared to re-enslavement of those who had, and this is his quote, tasted the sweets of freedom. Right. So even as someone who appears to be on the winning side, right. there's still fears of, hey, I may be free, but is this temporary or is this yeah. permanent? I'm still a, a black man in, in America, right? Now, yes, absolutely. Now, most black patriots were liberated by their masters um, or the state legislatures. So a lot of those who served as substitutes, um, they, they did see those rewards. We mentioned earlier in the South, it was more common for those masters to back out on promises. Yeah. Um, for example, uh, the Virginia General Assembly had to order the emancipation of its black patriots after... Uh, Many of them were re-enslaved. Yeah. So, well, a good thing. Luckily, the, the Virginia General Assembly came to their rescue and said, no, you promised them their freedom, free them. Okay, good, good. Uh, now, there were some who weren't waiting for legislatures to make that call. Right. Um, and so they took the advantage of the confusion of the war, and they ran away. Um, yeah. So we have a large portion of runaways. Uh, some of them run into the frontier, where yeah. they become maroons, like these kind of uh, frontier fighters hiding. Right. Um, some of them 
went up north to blend in with the new free black population sure. that had been established. Sure. Um, um, so like I said, a small percentage of a, of a free black population had been established in the northern states. And uh, after the war, we see those northern states start to adopt gradual emancipation. Um, it's not like we may have learned in school where the North were like, slavery's over. No, it was gradual. It was like, right. you know, by the time you're this age or right. um, by this year. Um, I know in our class, our professor mentioned that, for example, in a northern state like New Hampshire, there were still slaves in the 1840s because of the way that these laws uh, were very raised. slow. Yeah. And the let go of it, which I think is like, you know, it, much of like the, the revolution story where it's like, you know, it's all about the, the Patriots being the good guys and, you know, uh, the King being tyrannical, right. You know, our, our story of like, well, now the North says everybody's free, you know, that that's oversimplified, right. That's, yeah. there's no, that's not the nuance that reality has. Right? So I think it's important to note that by the end of the revolution, at least in the North, many white Patriots had grown to accept the emancipation okay. of those slave soldiers. Um, because they fought for the cause. Right. So there's a, a lot more acceptance. Right. Not necessarily tolerance, right. but acceptance. Right. Um, whereas in the South, where a much smaller uh, percentage participated in the Patriot cause, most of those um, who did, they were often uh, recaptured. Um, if you're looking at Southern planters trying to recoup recuperate their losses, uh, while Loyalist slaves... They captured loyalist slaves and they imported new Africans mm -hmm. to kind of combat those those groups that they had lost. So, yeah, to make up for it. Yeah, so they were less accepting. Um, so they just were like, you know what? We're just going to go harder at this thing called slavery yeah. and just recruit more. Wow. wow. Um, now, black loyalists had a, a difficult time securing their liberty. Um, they, I, wanna, I mean, because they lose the war. Yeah, right? they lose the yeah. war. So. Yes. Yeah. You're on the losing side. Uh, I want to tell you a story of a woman named Mary Postill. Okay. Um, she was a formerly enslaved uh, woman from South Carolina. Um, her family sought refuge with the British in Charleston. She was given a certificate of freedom. Okay. okay. So you're free. Um, following the defeat of the British, the Postill family evacuated to Florida, okay. which at this time was under British control. Right. So they evacuated to Florida. And they became they became the the hired servants of a man named Jesse Gray. Okay, okay so they're free; they're the servants of right. a uh, former loyalist. However, Mister Gray stole her certificate and re-enslaved her and her family. Well, and then and then, just I mean, who who is the average white person in power going to believe? Yes, right, man. And so. I want to believe. <laughs> I want to believe, right. But wait, there's more. Oh uh, so he later, he sells her, Mary, the the mother, to his brother. And then they, they relocate to Canada, which is okay. obviously under British control. Um, eventually, he sells, the brother sells him back to, to Jesse. So okay. she's back in the hands of the, of the man who re-enslaved her. Um, and by this point, and this is important, because of the back and forth, Mary is afraid that, this is going to continue and the family is going to be broken up. So she decides instead of risking being sold, the family should run away. Mm. And they do. They run away. Um, unfortunately, they are recaptured and they go to court 
and the court sides with Mr. Gray. And so as punishment, Jesse Gray sells Mary Postel, just her, just her, uh, for a hundred bushels of potatoes as punishment. Wow. So and separated from her. And separated, separated from, from her family. family. Um, I know that obviously Mary Postel stories is not a unique experience uh, for black loyalists. They were definitely viewed as property um, and plunder. Now, I mean, I know I'm sure I know you're getting there, but I'm thinking back to Lord Dunmore's mm-hmm. proclamation, right? You know, any and all, you come help the, the British cause, you'll be free. Yeah. But they lose the war. So what happened to that group? Yeah, so she was part of that group. Part of that group, yeah. Okay. She, and so that would have been a common a common experience. Uh, now, there were more of them who, who traveled north to New York. Okay. Um, a lot of those little black loyalists in the south, they were in the most danger. Yeah. of being re-enslaved, yeah. as was the case with Mary Postel. Those who made it to the North, uh, they were a little bit more lucky. Um, and so that was a great segue. Um, it's also important to know that by this time, there's a new person in charge. Um, his name is uh, Sir Guy Carlton. He becomes the uh, new commander of the, I'm trying to look for the title, commander in North America. Yeah. So he's the new guy in charge. Uh, and so he, his job is essentially to pick up the pieces and he's mainly going to be over the evacuation of the British, which at this point is going to include their allies. Um, I also think it's important to note that during this time, a huge conversation between the, the Patriots and the British was property. What do we do with our property? How do we be, um, um, how do we get, uh, you know, refunded for our property. And it's important to know that the Treaty of Paris, which Andrew mentioned came out in 1783, um, Article 7 actually states, uh, it declares, quote, his Britannic majesty shall, without causing any destruction or carrying away any Negroes or other property of the American inhabitants, withdraw all his armies from the United States. And I paraphrase that. Right. It wasn't word for word. So basically, the treaty is saying we're not going to remove your property. We're not going to. And in this case, that would be the enslaved people. Wow. Um, Now, like I said, Guy Carlton's in charge. Now, this dude's going to choose honor over the treaty. Um, And he has a famous meeting with George Washington. George Washington makes it to uh, New York, and they sit down one-on-one. And... um, this is told by one of Carlton's aides who's uh, in the room. Basically, George Washington, one of the number one things he's concerned about is the return of American property, a.k.a. Sure. you know, black loyalists. Yeah, right. And basically what Carlton says to G-dubs is uh, there's, they're already gone. He's like, you know, there's already all this departure of them to Canada. Um, and he, Carlton is quoted with saying, no interpretation could be put upon the article inconsistent with prior promises binding the national honor, which must be kept with all colors. So Carlton is saying Dunmore's proclamation trumps yeah. the Treaty of Paris. Wow. And so Washington's startled. Washington's like, uh, okay. They do come to an agreement that Americans would be reimbursed for their property loss. Yeah. Uh, and that black loyalists would receive certificates of freedom 
and a ticket out of the country. Okay. And so that's the compromise that kind of eases the tension. Right. So Carlton's the guy that keeps the promises of his predecessors, um, okay. which is going to lead to the thousands of black loyalists being evacuated. Um, so let's talk about evacuation. Yeah. Um, so from 1782 to 1783, uh, it's estimated that thousands uh, left the newly independent United States, uh, marking one of the, the largest max, mass exoduses of political refugees in world history, right? right? Uh, black and white loyalists are leaving. And fortunately for them, the British Empire is very vast, right? There's lots of places they could go. A lot of options. Uh, Empire where the sun never sets. Yeah. Covered it last week. Yeah. So uh, also it's important to note that the circumstances of the British defeat did reduce the number of black loyalists under British protection. Uh, we talked about how many were re-enslaved. Some were forced into hiding. Others were killed during the war. So we do know that those who escaped were not all of those who served as black loyalists. It sure. was a very small sample size. It's estimated that eight to 10,000 black loyalists were officially evacuated. Okay, eight to 10. Um, eight to 10. Okay, wow. Um, they found new homes in Canada, Florida, Okay, think of Mary Postel. Right. Jamaica, the Bahamas. Right. Eventually Sierra Leone. Uh, some are going to go to England itself. Right. Um, now, one of the problems, as we mentioned with uh, with Mary, actually, I didn't mention this. In Florida, according to the, the Treaty of Paris, Florida becomes a Spanish territory. Right. So all of those uh, black loyalists and even white loyalists who fled to Florida had to once again relocate. Right. So uh, it's also important to note that 50% more blacks were evacuated as loyalist slaves mm -hmm. rather than freemen. Let wow. me say that again. 50% more blacks yes. evacuated as loyalist slaves than freemen. So the, the whole idea of you fight with us, you know. Once again, it's that, it's that coin, right? On one side, British is the liberators. On the other side, they are the enforcers of slavery right and again which which institution you know is yeah. is deemed more powerful right sure. and i guess i should say the americans have the same coin right oh yeah right yeah, it's, it's it, it works coin. i think at this point it's i think much like your thesis suggests right yes. is, is it, it doesn't matter so those who went to spain a lot of them returned to the continental u.s and i think yep. a lot of that has to do with financial restraints yeah i mean we're thinking these are people who are impoverished so they can't really afford to get on a boat to go to the Caribbean, to right. go to England, to go to right. Canada. So they're probably just traveling, you know, back to Georgia, mm. South Carolina, right. um, where they probably saw a lot of re-enslavement. Um, I do want to note Lord Dunmore once again plays a role. Um, he returns as like the Bahamas. Yeah, he? yeah he becomes right. the royal governor of, of the Bahamas. And once again, he comes to the rescue. Uh, there were some black loyalists who had been re-enslaved in the Bahamas and he answered their cries. He, he, uh, they claimed that they were free. And what Dunmore did was, uh, he honored those claims and that, and thus kind of alien alienated himself with, with white loyalists. Uh, but once again, you know, he's, he's playing a prominent role. Right. Wow. Full circle. Yeah. Um, now, but, but he stood by his word. I mean, that's, yeah, he that's something to be said. Yeah, in light of everything else that we've talked about, right? I mean, <laughs> absolutely. It's not, he's not a perfect actor. Don't get me wrong. It's, yeah. So, last thing about uh, about black loyalists, the majority of them, out of that eight to ten thousand, they yeah. did relocate to Canada. Okay. Um, now, once again, during the first couple of evacuations, the British were were relying on privateers. Okay, they, they didn't have a lot of 
you know, ships to, to use, to spare. And so they were relying on privateers to transfer these, these refugees. Unfortunately, they would get on the boats and these privateers would then turn around and sell them to willing buyers. Well, and we should say privateers are legal pirates. Yes. I mean, so they're, they're, you know, they're, they're, by their very nature, they are, you know, stealing and plundering and, you know, and and they're, and they're just kind of given a letter to say that's okay. So as a result, uh, Sir Guy Carlton, remember the, the commander, he, uh, he has to, he has to make a shift, right? And so what he does is he creates what's called the Book of Negroes, which basically becomes a ledger yeah. of uh, black loyalists who are going to be transported to Canada. And it's one of the most well documents, I would say, in all of African-American history. Yeah. Uh, there's almost, there's like 3,000 individuals listed. Yeah. Okay. He gives detail, name, age, Former condition of servitude. Now is that description. to ensure they actually arrive yes. in Canada? And okay. the whole idea yeah. was these privateers do not get paid unless everyone in that book made it on shore. Wow. So the British are making some precautions to make sure that that these promises are being fulfilled. And by British, I mean Carlton. Yeah. Now, I have to yeah. imagine that there have... Because I know generally when you think of the Atlantic slave trade, you don't think of a whole lot of records in mm-hmm. terms of like names identities it's much more property, property. no right? it's numbers just yeah. numbers. It's, it's numbers right yeah it's not descriptions right, right. It's numbers and so i have to imagine there's a lot of black people today must be able to trace their they ancestry can. right yeah we talked about i love genealogy yeah for african americans here in the united states most of them can only trace to the years after the civil war yeah now wow. the african americans in canada like nova scotia where we're getting to talk about they can trace it back to this time period so that whole idea of having an identity now yeah um so nova scotia canada is going to be the main destination um and they're going to establish some black settlements um the most famous is birchtown and i believe it's named after uh, a british uh officer by the last name of birch who assisted in the freedom certificates so forth and so on. Um, examinations of muster books from black settlements in Annapolis and Burstown indicate that as many as nine to 10,000 blacks settled in the regions of Nova Scotia. Now you may notice wow. that's more than yeah. than the Book of Negro. So it suggests that uh, others arrived as well, that not all of these free blacks arrived in Canada via those boats. boats some of them arrived right. in other ways. Right. Um, and so it becomes one of the, the largest settlements of black loyalist refugees. Okay. Um, it's also important to know that that's not the end of the story. Canada wasn't without its prejudice. Um, right. Royal policy promised the distribution of 100, of 100 acres of land to all loyalist settlers, right. plus an additional 50 for every family member. That's um, pretty significant. Yeah, that's a lot of land. Yeah. However, it appears that few blacks received their land, okay. and those who did were given smaller lots that contain the worst soil. Wow. Uh, yeah. uh, so for example, um, in Shelbourne, which was another uh, black uh, settlement, white loyalists waited usually about three years for their land. So it was even backed up for them. I mean, let's think about it. You got thousands of, right. of, royal, uh, of, of loyalist refugees. That's a lot of paperwork. That's a lot of documents. Right. So yeah. it took about average three years for the white loyalists 
and they got an average of about 74 acres out of that 100 promised. Okay. Huh. For black loyalists, in comparison, only 28% Wow. of black loyalists in Birchtown received their promised land. Some waited up to five years. Right. And on average, they only got 34 acres. 34 acres. So it is a significant, I mean, it's half, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. So now we should say for those few who are obviously less than, than whites in a much smaller percentage, mm -hmm. but we should say, I mean, the, the, the glow up from property to property owner. Pretty significant. It's pretty significant. Yeah. yeah. And it's definitely thinking about a group of people that have no wealth. Like, yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I know so much of like, of, of politics in today's climate has to do with the fact that, that a lot of African Americans, you know, they don't come that from wealth. Yeah. There's, there's no generational wealth. And so to think that in one generation you can go from, I mean, being a property owner is a big deal. That, that's, that's when you look at old money property ownership tends to be the common thing. Yeah. It, it solidifies your position as a free man. Yes. Property. Absolutely. Uh, and so without that property, it perpetuates this dependence. Okay. Um, there's a, there's a historian by the name of uh, James uh, W. St. G. Walker. He's got a really long name. Uh, the name. term he used <laughs> is bondage of dependence. Okay. So in a way, they're, they're enslaved still by their dependence on their white neighbors because they become sharecroppers. They wow. become laborers because wow. they don't have that land. Yes. So hopefully you see that Canada, while it was better, it wasn't without its prejudice. Sure. And so um, as a result, it's not going to be the final destination. Okay. There's a man named Thomas Peters. He was a, a, a black man. I believe he was kidnapped from Africa. Uh, he travels to London to basically protest the treatment of his peers in Canada. Yeah. And while he's there, he befriends a man named Granville Sharp, who is the organizer of the Sierra Leone Company. Yeah. And the Sierra Leone Company uh, was a company, much like the Virginia Company, sure. who tried to establish a settlement in Western Africa for free blacks. They had attempted this before, um, and it had failed. And so he solicits Thomas Peters to kind of revitalize this idea. And so Peters returns to Nova Scotia, recruits 1,200 black refugees, and they settle in Sierra Leone. Okay. One of these people who settles is a man named Harry Washington, okay. who was one of George Washington's runaway slaves wow. that I mentioned earlier wow. to uh, Lord Dunmore's proclamation. Wow. As well as Boston King, he's, hey, he's one of those twelve hundred okay. that uh, settles there. I'm glad he. I mean, uh, after everything Boston King went through, yeah, my nah. goodness. I mean, so you can see how I mentioned it. he really does encompass yes. a lot of this. I mean, and, and you, you mentioned like such the the exodus, and in a case like him, he was having this exodus while the war was going on. You yeah. know, back and forth. Now um, in Sierra uh, Leone, the the town that they established is Freetown, right? Okay. Very fitting. Freetown. Uh, now, in Freetown, there's going to be a lot of challenges. And for them, it's it's nature and disease. Uh, the extreme temperatures of Africa, sure. tornadoes, uh, really? violent rains made the construction of their shelters very difficult. Sure. Uh, and then also, I, I do want to know, like, the first week there was great. Like, when you read, like, the letters, they're on cloud nine. Like, this yeah. first week is great. Second week, it all goes to hell. <laughs> uh, and so yeah. not only are they dealing with like mother nature, 
they're also dealing with nature itself, like right. wild animals. Right. Um, there's instances of snakes encircling huts, insects spoiling food. Wow. I kid you not, baboons seizing children from their tents. Oh my so the, the challenges are It only adds crazy. to my irrational fear of primates. <laughs> with into your house. With, well, I mean, sure. Stealing your dog. In abstract, maybe, yeah. So. Sorry, um, not to make light. That's horrible. Yeah. That's right, yeah. Within the first month, over 100 settlers had died from disease. Wow. Out of that, you know, 1,200. And another 500 were ill. So Jamestown? I, mean, I was thinking of I mean, Jamestown, like, that's right? That, that the first winter, right? Absolutely. But, but worse? Yes. Yeah. And we're not baboons <laughs> yeah. in Jamestown. <laughs> so in addition to kidnapping baboons... Um, the Sierra Leone Company governed the colony. And so you have white men governing this free black colony in Africa. So a company town. Yeah. yeah, so I mean, just think about all the problems that are going to occur. Yeah. Um, and so there were a lot of uh, uh, protests from the colonists yeah. um, because they felt, they felt like these officials treated them inferior. Right. They, did pa- they demanded uh, payments of quint rent, rent, of certain types of rent they... You know, huh. demanded these. Okay. And so by 1800, a lot of these colonists, they were fed up. And as an act of resistance, they formed their own rival government. Wow. Uh, unfortunately, at this time, the Sierra Leone Company had also imported a bunch of Maroons who were mercenaries from Jamaica. It caused up all these problems. So they imported them here and they hired them as mercenaries. Wow. And so the the Sierra Leone Company, with the addition of these Jamaican mercenaries, uh, basically put down the rebellion. Two rebel leaders were executed, um, and 25 others were exiled, including Harry Washington. Okay. So he he gets kicked out of uh, Sierra Leone. So it's not all perfect. And we should say, I mean, this this quest for freedom was not guaranteed. No. And certainly, even if they become property owners, in the case of Canada, does not mean equality. No, uh, certainly not social. You know, absolutely, that's crazy. Yeah, and that's equality is definitely definitely on the the lips of white men, but I think the word on the lips of black people is just freedom. Yeah, that's what's great. the? Oh, there's that quote that we that kept coming up in our class, that something along the lines of, those who are the loudest speakers of 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 liberty are the ones driving the whip. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, and, and it's that reality of like the Enlightenment or ideals sound really good on paper, but even as they were written, it was understood that they weren't actually meant for you know. Yes. All people were not created equal. Yeah. In the frame of which Jefferson's writing, right? I mean, it's yeah. yeah. So that's where I'm going to close the story of Black Loyalists, um, and now we need to finish Black Patriots. Yeah. Um, so obviously, the Americans won. So there is no mass exodus of black patriots, except for those who flee their their slave masters who go sure. back on their promises. Sure. Um, so you have a huge transformation of black life in the United States that provides opportunity for people to gain their freedom. Um, so some numbers here. It's estimated that uh, around 1760, so a decade before the revolution, yeah. the number of free blacks in the United States was a few thousand. By 1810 that few thousand had evolved into 200,000 so i mean think about i told you that by the time of the revolution there were 500,000 african americans in the united states yes so 
essentially almost half of that original number yeah are now free yeah. uh, now we mentioned wow. earlier in the first few post-war decades you see gradual gradual emancipation laws you see manumission codes anti-kidnapping laws um, you see the nation's feelings towards slavery change now that is mostly in, in the north um and so slavery definitely becomes a the South's peculiar institution, right? Right. Yeah. It becomes yeah. you know something that's the South, uh, where racism and prejudice continue to factor in, into society. Um, now, historian Ira Berlin, he's he's another leading historian in Black life. He said that as the Negro prop, population grew, whites curbed their mobility limited their economic opportunities and all but obliterated many of their political rights. Yeah. Absolutely. Wow. Um, I'm also thinking back to your, uh, your statement about slavery. I mean, you got to think that the cotton gin is kind of right at the turn of the, the 1800s, you know? And so now, you know, it, it was before, but even now, you know, slavery is seen from Southern planters eyes as a economic necessity. Um, and was it a necessity? I think the answer is no, but it was certainly justified um, for helping the bottom line. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think it's important to know that for most black loyalists, liberty came at a cost. And that cost was the enslavement of their family. Um, unlike the British, you know, it was a single thing. Men gained their freedom, not women and children. Right. And so a lot of these new free black men returned to their their places of bondage because that's where their families were right um and the goal was to liberate their family from the shackles of slavery and so you see most of these free blacks uh they become super impoverished because of that general that generation wealth gap that we talked about right. but also because any money that they're earning they're funneling into the liberation of their families they're, they're, not, right. buy, they're not buying property they're not yeah yeah, yeah. i mean one argument you hear from very ignorant people is blacks own slaves too. And that's true, but it's for this purpose of I'm going to buy you so that I can liberate you, yeah. or I'm going to buy you so that I can be your master because I will protect you better than right. someone else. So sure. uh, keep that in mind. There's a, there's a perfect example, a man named Caesar Tehran. Uh, he, at the end of his life, he's still trying to liberate his family. In his will, uh, this is what he says. He says that uh, all his possessions be sold and the money applied towards liberating his daughter, Liddy, from slavery. So at this point, his wife is free. His other daughter is free, but one is still is, is enslaved. So literally, sell everything and that money needs to go to liberating her so the family can finally be free. Wow. Um, those who lack the time or money to purchase freedom did the next best thing. And that was run away. Uh, now by running away, they kind of condemn themselves as life uh, to a life of fugitives. Um, it's also important to note that the United States constitution, so, you know, 1787 ratified in 1789 has the fugitive slave clause in it, uh -huh. which says if you're a runaway slave, right. you will be returned. And so the U S constitution is, is protecting slavery in this way. Yeah. So, uh, some free blacks rose against the odds. They did acquire minor wealth and property, uh, but their financial status could not change the prejudice they experienced. Sure. Um, there's many examples of, 
uh, free black men and women petitioning to Congress for rights as full citizens. Right. Um, they were ignored. Uh, one important factor, and I'm speeding through this, is black churches, the organization yeah. of, of the black faith, sure. uh, which in some cases was uh, integrated, but slowly become segregated because right. religious organizations would not recognize them. So they were forced to, to start their own churches. Create their own communities, right? And yeah. then also the idea of establishing schools was really taboo. And uh, I, I want to leave us on this one example, a man named Christopher McPherson. Um, he was added, he was very, uh, a huge advocate for starting a school and, uh, I believe it was a night school. And he also, he was a black man. He had white teachers that were being like threatened and discriminated against. Um, and so his school was shut down. Well, eventually he tried to reestablish a school and he was thrown into a lunatic asylum simply because he tried to establish schools, um, I'm just, I'm having a hard time just processing Yeah, I'm just like, oh, yeah. what? Wow. Clearly there wasn't a, there wasn't much of a checklist for doing no. that, you know? So one last thing I just kind of want to leave us with before we get into, uh, to our takeaways. And I know it's been a long episode, so thank you guys for, for continuing to tune in. This is enlightening. Yes, uh, truly. I think that while the revolution did bring liberty to thousands of black patriots, and black uh, loyalists, it failed to deliver the equality mentioned in the Declaration of Independence. Yes. Um, and so as my thesis to conclude it, um, I really don't think loyalties played a huge role. Uh, I think the experiences of both loyalists and patriots were, were parallel. Yep. I mean, they were, they were utilized as a military strategy by both sides. Uh, some gained freedom Others not. Yeah. Some were re-enslaved, uh, but nonetheless, they continued to face prejudice either as free men and women yeah. or obviously those who remained in bondage. Wow. I guess, I mean, let's just let's move yeah, to takeaways, man, because this has been, Jonathan, this has been, I think this has been the best episode we've done. I think this has been so much information, so much of, we call this, these, this segment of spotlight. Yeah. And I yeah. feel like this has truly been like a, a room that's dark, that's been illuminated. You know, right. So thank you for all your research, well, there's, man. There's so much that needs to be learned and, yes. and shared. And I think that's why it's worth going in depth and spending time on things like this that are just so, unfortunately, just unknown right? yeah. or unknown by the masses. And, and I feel like I just touched the surface. So I encourage you guys, you know, do more research, yeah. learn more. You know, I think... It's, it's a lot to take in because it's so challenging to the typical narrative of American history. And as fellow history teachers, right, and maybe yeah. some of you listening are, or you've at least been in a history class, certainly, um, it seems like it's really easy to take black history my next history, women's history, whatever minority group you have, and teach it as a separate theme or a separate unit or a separate class. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's, it's, you know, as entire majors. Or um, it just happened you know, for this one period. You know, the civil rights movement, that's Sure, it, sure. Right? Or you may learn about these individuals in a, in a black history class. Right. But I think the thing, I was diligently taking notes because, wow, how important it is for us to know that 
you're you're speaking to some major events lexington concord yes yorktown the, lafayette i'm just name dropping just these important names that like almost anyone who's been in history class knows the greatest but, hits albums of the american revolution <laughs> yes, right like but it's within intimately intertwined in every single one of those things is black history right american history is black history yes absolutely and i think for me that is just that's the light bulb yeah it's it's not a it's it's like an led <laughs> light bulb really bright the one that just shines in your eyes when you're driving on the highway at night you're just like, oh, what is that right? i can't it's... i can't unsee it now yeah you know and i feel like even as i'm approaching this school year and this is one of the first things we teach and and are in a push right it's going to change the way i teach and if I even dare to try to teach the American Revolution this period without mentioning black loyalists and black, right. black patriots, I'm going to be betraying my conscience at this point. Yeah. I don't think I can do it. Yeah. Knowing yeah. this now. Well, and like you said, they're so incredibly entwined, right? And I think we always, in our class, I mean, I mean we covered this a little bit last episode, but one thing that was really ingrained in this class is that the founders wrote words that appeared to apply to all mankind and they weren't fully realized. They weren't for, for fully meant. And if there's one thing we can do as history teachers, as, as Americans, as people who probably would like to think that we believe the, the all men are created equal, um, we should live the revolution. Right. Mm. And that means we're constantly working on that image. We're yeah. constantly trying to make that statement mean what it should have meant Back in 1776. The American Revolution is not over? No. It's living. It's a living revolution. That's right. That's right. Guys, this has been great. Yes. I think, I mean, really, there's so much we can unpack, so much we could say. Um, I'm going to meditate on this. Thank you, Jonathan. Jonathan, Thanks thanks for giving me the opportunity. Mr. Jonathan. I mean, think, if you're still listening, thank you for <laughs> for, for giving the time. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. as I wrote, like like I said, this was supposed to be 10 pages. I just couldn't stop. Like Ethan said, like my conscious, I, I couldn't stop. I had to keep going. I had to keep digging. So one class in, and I think you found like your capstone project. I think you, I think you found him. <laughs> Maybe. <Yes. laughs> well, again, like always, guys, uh, you're always welcome to send us your own your own research, questions, comments, things you like, things you didn't like, suggestions, ideas for future topics. We're always open in uh, in engaging in a dialogue with you. Um, of course, feel free to share this podcast, like us on wherever you get your podcast from. Follow us on social media. Yeah, we Facebook. have a Facebook page. Yeah, yeah. it's very. Uh, we need to get Twitter. Look for Abraham look for us Lincoln. on, on yeah. Twitter <laughs> with glasses, and you'll see it. Yeah. Look for Abe Lincoln. <laughs> well, guys, this has been another episode of Make History Dope again, and uh, like we always say, uh, stay safe, stay sane, wear a mask. Thanks, guys. <laughs>